Hey. That FaceTime music is a jam. I almost just let it continue playing. <laughs> that stuff slaps. Were you, were, did, did it ring on um, when you tried me for a while? Because I got two things and then I thought I clicked it accept and then it was gone. <laughs> uh, no, I only called you once, but I mean, I would not fault you for just listening to that music. <laughs> we need like, and I say we need, somebody's already done this. There's got to be just a banging remix of that call music <laughs> out there somewhere. A million years ago, at my very first job, my boss realized that I had some sort of a natural talent and for some reason, a desire to keep working in restaurants. And he took me aside and he said, Randall, you could be really good at this and you could go far if you could just learn to keep your mouth shut. If you're listening to this, you'll know I took part of that advice. So how are you, Steve? How's it going? Uh, not, not too bad. Uh, doing pretty good. How are you doing? Doing okay. It is still colder here in Chicago than I would like it to be, seeing as how it is now, tomorrow, May. Yes. Fine. Chicago <laughs> does this shit to us, right? Like, we had a week of 80-something degrees where my novice gardener brain, uh, hopeful, uh, innocent, young, naive gardener <laughs> brain, was like, fucking, I'm putting my plants outside. Glad I did not. It snowed three days later. Yeah. <laughs> the snow didn't stick, but it did snow for like two days. Yeah. And then there was slate and other shitty things. And so it's starting to balance out now. A friend of mine said that he never puts any of his plants outside until after May 10th, which is about a week and a half from now. So I think I'm going to go with that. Uh, yeah, that's I think the uh, the uh, um, what the Internet is recommending as well, because I think that's like the last frost date like uh, Farmer's Almanac or whatever. I don't know what the internet is actually getting its information, probably compiling it from uh, National Weather Service yeah. and other more legitimate sources than I cut some bark and chewed it for a while and spat it out and it said May 10th or whatever the Farmer's Almanac usually uh, goes by. But I do not know why, but I do trust the Farmer's Almanac in a gut sense more than the internet, even though I know they're likely doing the exact same thing one just happens to be all old-timey and yeah. if not proven then at least trusted by a lot of people yeah it's probably the same sources just packaged differently uh, yeah 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 yeah. uh well you know what let's start there ladies and gentlemen welcome back to in the weeds with ben randall i am ben randall and i'm stephen cadwell and garden update right so i now have five varieties of tomato two sweet peppers Two containers of jalapenos, but they haven't sprouted yet because I, we talked about this a while back. I want to make more stuff. I want to buy less stuff, right? So when I was at work, I needed jalapenos for a recipe and I stole some seeds. That's not exactly a crime because they were, they were a waste product from that particular vegetable in that recipe. So I chucked those into some dirt. We'll see what happens with those. I have oregano. I have basil. I have thyme. I have two different kinds of heirloom pickling cucumbers. I have an heirloom kind of zucchini called uh, black zucchini. Oh, and I have that head of garlic that sprouted. So I have eight garlics, right? All of that is in my ramshackle greenhouse in my basement right now, made out of a metro rack and this big zippered canvas and plastic cover sort of a thing. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get a hold of us at any point, the best way probably is, unfortunately, and much to my deep shame, Instagram. So you can find me at <laughs> Chef Ben Randall, and I actually put a video up today of that greenhouse. 
we also have a uh, Facebook page and a Facebook group uh, for longer form stuff. The email for me is in the weeds WBR at gmail.com. And Steve runs a website for us in the weeds WBR.com where you'll see all of this stuff as well. Uh, what are you planning on, or if anything, what are you planning on growing this year, Steve? Well, we have transplanted um, three or four, I think it's four at least, uh, black raspberry brambles from my parents' place. Nice. We did that a while ago, and they're, they're doing fine. The cold didn't seem to bother them too much. So I don't know if we'll get any berries off them. I think they should be of the correct age, but, you know... Um, we'll see because we did trim them a little bit to, to get them in the car and to get them down here. But they all of them survived and they're they're growing now. Um, and in our basement, though we started a little late, um, we have a couple tomato plants, um, two onions. <laughs> we we uh, we didn't we only have the one table so and it was an experiment for us this year. Right. Uh, we have a lot of uh, hibiscus, but that's not for it's not the kind you would turn into tea. It's just for uh, flowers. Just for being um, pretty. Yeah, so um, I need all the help I can get. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, those actually th- have done the best for us in terms of sprouting. And I did did the, the trick that I saw online, which was to score the seed a little bit and then soak it for at least an hour overnight is fine, too, before yeah. you plant it for the hibiscus. And then I was looking. I was going to ask you. So, and I don't because I don't know if this would be true for jalapenos as well. It's not a hundred percent necessary. But I don't know if you do this for with your tomato seeds. Do you let your tomato seeds ferment before you dry them out? Um, so that is a project for this year. I purchased all the seeds that I have, aside from the jalapeno seeds that I just tossed into that dirt fresh. Uh, but I bought all of them from the Seed Savers Exchange, so I don't know the answer to that. Okay, because I don't. I saw it was for tomato, but tomato's a little goopy anyway, and it was yeah. like scoop out your tomato goop, throw it in a jar with a little bit of how forget how much water, and then let it set there for however long, and basically until the top gets moldy, and then. Uh, oh, so squirrel brunch place style. Yes, yeah, you've got to squirrel your seeds away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it it said it's not a hundred percent necessary for tomato seeds, but it it mimics then what would have happened if the tomato just fell off the vine and right. and um, you know rotted on its own and and, uh, and so then it it, it could or, or it helps um, more of the seeds be. Um, germane <laughs> it, it helps more of them germinate so yeah i'm yes. with you on that i don't know what the uh how to conjugate that um so uh i didn't and i don't know if the seeds i got in the store um went through that process or not and i don't know what other seeds vegetable seeds would need to do that i also looked up uh, because we had i think we had black zucchini seeds as well from the maybe that was from the library the seed okay. library here in town all, all of our seeds are also heirloom that we got for our uh, salsa garden. Um, but uh, I was w- just curious about zucchini because I was like, oh, uh, how do you harvest these? Because the seeds, we had some zucchini in uh, for lunch or, or yeah. something. And I was like, wait a minute, how do you plant these? Um, and what I didn't realize and was fascinated by is that uh, we eat uh, zucchini babies. Yes. Uh, the one, the ones we're eating are not mature zucchini. If you let a zucchini get mature, everything I said was they're not at ed- not edible. I presume that means you don't want to eat them, not that it would be bad to eat them. Right. As that plant gets older, it 
transforms a lot of sugars into starches so that it has a stronger structure to it, which makes it tougher and more either bitter or acidic. I forget which way it goes with zucchini. But you're right. The seeds kind of plump out and get way harder, almost like a pumpkin seed. Yes. When they yes. get to that stage. Um, and I noticed that when I planted them. I was like, wait a minute. This doesn't resemble these seeds I'm eating in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, yeah. So I thought that was fascinating. And then earlier today, because I, we do have the two onion sprouts downstairs, I was like, wait a minute. How do you harvest onion seeds because the seeds are like this isn't a bulb i planted a tiny little black seed yeah for onions and uh i guess onions are um biennials and uh they they will bloom and that's where you get the seeds yeah yeah i was gonna say that ladies and gentlemen if you ever have an onion sitting on your counter like i do right now that's got a green shoot sticking out of it that wants to eventually become a flower that will then have seeds and that's what steve's talking about there which is why yeah onion seeds are these little black pellets as opposed to looking anything like an onion Right, which is fascinating because you'd think, oh, onion's a bulb plant because we eat the bulb, but yeah. uh, no, they, they come from seeds, which I guess most, I mean, the flowers that have bulbs would also then reproduce via seeds, which become bulbs, right? Right. Yeah, so fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there was something else I wanted to say. Oh, so um, I, I didn't give you the full extent because this is stuff that's not really going to matter. But ladies and gentlemen, if this is your first episode, welcome. Uh, I have three four avocado plants one of which is taller than my daughter now who is 10 years old i have four coffee plants i have one orange tree that i grew from seed which is three inches tall <laughs> i have a grapefruit that i grew from seed which is maybe five inches tall and i just potted three lemon trees that they're still just sprouts right but it's shockingly easy and it's amazing like yeah i'm happy that i bought these heirloom seeds but like steve was just saying i'm going to keep the seeds from the tomatoes and the peppers and whatever that are successful this year and i have a dehydrator so rather than doing what steve was saying i'm gonna just dehydrate mine with as much of the pulp removed as i can and it doesn't need to be pretty for me the seeds that you get in a packet are designed to also be sort of appealing looking to you so that you buy more of them later but the pulp doesn't hurt anything right it's actually it'll decompose in the soil and help give that seed something to chew on so i'm just gonna save some of them but like i didn't buy lemon seeds i didn't buy orange seeds i bought those fruits with those seeds in them and i was like well i'll wrap them in paper towel and wrap that in a plastic bag and then give it a couple of weeks and open it up. What you have to be careful with is that these seeds will mold, right? Yeah. I learned the other day, and there's a guy on Instagram doing really, really good work, and I cannot, I just was trying to look, I cannot remember what his name is, but he does these intense, very frenetic videos about how to just do stuff like this. And uh, if you put a little bit of cinnamon onto some seeds before you sprout them, it acts as a natural antibacterial and antifungal. I had no idea. Steve just made an incredulous face. I had no idea. That was the same face I made when I watched that thing. And uh, he has all of these hints, like if you have a clear plastic bottle because you bought a Sprite or something, I guess those are green. What would be clear? Pepsi, maybe? Yeah, and you yeah. cut the bottom off of it, but you leave the top on it. You can put that directly into the soil above where your plant's going to be, and it's a tiny greenhouse. Like, I never would have thought of that shit myself, right? Now, am I doing that? No, because I just haven't done it. But like... It is amazing in my my new sort of mellow quest to just, like, make stuff rather than buy stuff. Uh, yeah, rather than throw... And we don't even just throw seeds away, right? When we have uh, butternut squash or we have uh, an orange or whatever, we're composting that stuff. And I don't know why it didn't occur to me years ago. We always, in our compost, would get 
plants growing out of there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's probably a zucchini or whatever. Never occurred to me to do that shit on purpose. <laughs> Which, if I remember correctly, that's how agriculture was invented anyway. People going, wait, what? where did that thing come from? You know? Uh, so, yeah, now I'm, I'm tempted to start cataloging like, hey, because, again, I am continuing to produce my own pills. Like, I make my own fucking medicine now, sort of. And, uh, Steve, I learned the other day you can make your own lotion. There's no law against that either. It's not hard to do, right? I have this dry patch on my arm that I don't know if it's a chemical burn or what, but nothing is fixing it. It's super itchy. I scratch it overnight when I'm asleep, and then I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to cut my arm off, right? I can have, like, a Luke Skywalker arm. That'd be cool. So I bought this stuff called Shea Butter. Mm-hmm. Never used it. Always heard of it. I don't like the way that stuff smells. So I was like, man, I bought a lot of this stuff. And it works, but I don't like the way it smells. What can I do with it? So I was just sort of Googling around trying to figure out what to do. Turns out you can make your own hand lotion, right? It's three to one shea butter to uh, coconut oil. You put in whatever sort of a scent you want. If you have a cosmetic grade like uh, scented oil, like a lavender or something like that. And you melt it chill it back down until it's like sort of goopy and then you whip it with like a hand blender until it's frothy and then it's lotion <laughs> and then you just have lotion that you didn't spend any fucking money on except for the ingredients i had no idea again no laws against it just put whatever you want in there <laughs> i'm glad that is the recipe um because uh you could make your own lotion uh <laughs> Well, and it just, it, I, I've had this sort of a watershed moment where it's like, wait a minute. What am I buying? What am I throwing away? And what am I using? Where do those intersect? And how many, uh, in that Venn diagram, how many things that are intersected there in the middle could I be either making or using differently or better, right? So like coffee grounds. I drink a, I believe a metric fuck ton of coffee. <laughs> it's an insane amount of coffee. It turns out coffee, because I, I, I dehydrate the coffee grounds and I grind them really, really finely. And those go into the fiber pills that I make for myself. They contain up to 30% of the original caffeine. And it's also dietary fiber, whatever, right? Works fucking great. By the way, noticeable difference. When I take those pills at work, I'm like, <laughs> oh, hey, <laughs> It's not like I just drank a cup of coffee, but I am more awake than I should be. <laughs> also, coffee grounds are, everybody knows that they're good for compost because they contain a bunch of nitrogen and stuff like that. They're also a natural pest repellent. So if you just like have houseplants that maybe have some fruit flies in them, sprinkle some coffee grounds in there and the fruit flies are like, ew, because they're probably tea drinkers. And then they piece <laughs> off like they need to go somewhere. So I have fruit fly traps by repelling them from my plants. They're attracted to the fruit fly traps and they're dead. It's amazing. That, like, I don't want to say, I don't want to blame capitalism, but, like, we're so used to just being, like, I'm going to buy the solution to my problem. I, the more I think about it, the more sort of, like, fucking duh moments I'm having where it's like, well, yeah, I could make that. Yeah, I could repurpose this thing. Yeah, seeds turn into fucking plants, right? Like, it's <laughs> shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know, one of the things to keep in mind, as we mentioned yesterday, or yesterday, as we mentioned last time, and I uh, also saw when I was looking for because my what my initial onion quest was, uh, how do you know when to harvest an onion? Because <laughs> never having seen an onion growing, my initial assumption was that whole onion is underground, which is not the case. Right. Right. It's kind of it's it, it's more of a uh, like a bobber. Yeah. Yeah. It pokes above the ground. Um, and it was like, hey, when the onion leaves fall over, you're ready. Yeah. Um, is what the Internet said. And then then you have to let it dry. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. 
So uh, anyway, I was l looking for that, and it was talking about seeds. It's like now, keep in mind if it, if your seed is it comes from a hybrid, it's probably not going to grow the same as the one that you ate. Right. Um, and we talked about that last time. So yeah, you, the, your heirloom varieties will grow true to type, but uh, your stuff you get from the store, if it's a hybrid, might not grow to, true to type. It might become some sort of weird alien monster that is going to destroy your house. I mean, there's value in that as well. Dramatically, you know. <laughs> the last piece of my puzzle for getting the garden outside, that's... Okay, as far as, like, garden equipment goes, the last piece of the puzzle for getting my garden outside is I do kind of want to get some, like, netting of some sort to put around, because I have those conical cages that you put around uh, tomatoes, and mm -hmm. I want to put, like, some sort of a light permeable netting around that, either plastic or, like, a... I don't even know. I, I need to go to a garden store and get some advice because my neighborhood's got a lot of animals in it. And the last thing I want is to spend all of this time and energy raising these seedlings and put them out there and have squirrels immediately just like eat them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or bunnies or whatever. And the tubs that I have them in are two feet tall. So it's going to keep out a lot of uh, herbivore predator kind of guys. But there's also a lot of birds in the neighborhood, and the reason for that is not specifically because of our chickens, but there are a lot of sparrows that get into our chicken feed, and I'm sure they're looking for other stuff as well. Right. So I need to figure out some sort of, at least when the plants are very young and I first move them out there, some way to kind of protect them. Uh, the other thing that has changed in my backyard is we bought this fucking monstrous trampoline for my daughter. thing is 12 feet across. It's easy... Uh, 12 feet tall with the like safety net thing around yep, it yep. and uh, it's taking up a huge amount of my backyard which is fine because now my daughter doesn't want to spend time inside learning awful things from YouTube so I'm happy <laughs> about that it's large enough that two people can play on it at a time although people my daughter's size we could probably cram a half dozen of them in there uh, meaning my son won't be left out but it does sort of dominate the real estate I was thinking about for my plants that are in pots so I'm going to need to sort of reconfigure that and make sure that nobody's going to accidentally like land on a beautiful heirloom tomato <laughs> you know uh, but that's that's a, a decision for a couple weeks from now when I move everything outside yeah. Hey, uh, Dad, it's time to harvest your tomato sauce. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and again, that is the point of all of this. Like, this summer is an experiment to see if I could potentially never buy pizza sauce or marinara again. Never buy canned or jarred tomatoes again, right? Because, like, in the past, even when we've grown tomatoes at my house, we're not a family that just sits down and we're like, hey, let's chat, eat some tomatoes, right? Like, we don't go in for, right. unless it's a caprese <laughs> salad, we don't go in for, like, let's just eat some tomatoes. But... We're doing pasta once a week. We're doing pizza once a week. We are going through a fair amount of what I call tomato product. If I'm taking the ones that I grow and I am processing in some sort of a way where I'm making a sauce or I'm doing peeled in jars or I'm making marinara, then that, that, is, that will be valuable. That will have a value to it. It's why I'm also growing oregano and basil. That shit's got to go in there too. I kind of get the feeling... Um that part of this is just your secret desire to uh, kick your kid's um, ketchup bracket up so high <laughs> that they'll never be satisfied with store-bought ketchup ever again. I had not thought about that. When I was working at Fancy Burger Place, Restaurant B, if you go all the way back to like the 30th episode of this show, we made our own ketchup, and uh, it was terrible. <laughs> that was a discussion that I had with the chef there. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're in the industry, you have worked for this chef. You haven't worked for this chef, but you've worked for this chef, where the chef comes to you and says, try this thing I made. And your job as sous chef or line cook or whatever is to taste it and grimace and go, that's fucking great. 
I told this particular fella, this ketchup's way too watery. It's pouring out all over the place. The flavor is fine, but it's it needs to cook way longer. And he told me I was out of my mind. I was like, all right. Dude, in a very prideful, ignorant, terrible sort of way, powered through like three weeks of this massive batch of really, really thin ketchup that he made. And we're getting Yelp reviews left and right. If you're going to have a burger restaurant, how do you not have, you know, Heinz ketchup or whatever yeah. it was? And their ketchup's <laughs> fucking terrible. Ruined my experience. Wouldn't stick to the fries. All of this. Comes to me and says, why didn't you tell me the ketchup was too thin? And I was like, I did. I was a lot angrier back then, so I'm sure we had an argument about it. Um, I'm sort of chilling out of my old age. And uh, went back to having just bottles of regular fucking ketchup at the joint. And then... He spent a long time, to his credit, figuring out a way to make good ketchup. But then at the end of the day, he still had to keep around that regular-ass ketchup. So could I make a ketchup that would rival the brand loyalty my kids already have? Yeah, probably. But I would still need to keep around the backup stuff. Yeah. Or I would go the other way, which is what burger restaurants run by fucking adults actually do. They have your heinz 57 ketchup right but then they make a house made mango habanero ketchup or something like that they've got yeah, something yeah. where it's like we are not trying to compete we're not trying to compare ourselves to this tried and true brand that's like 400 fucking years old we right. make something really weird yeah. and that that can have value too i mean i think that's also why american cheese still exists because for, for a lot of people it's like yeah we know it's not cheese yeah. but it's still like that's a cheeseburger um, right for you know for the same reason that we go to Arby's every now and again it's it's nostalgia it's childhood it's it's part of what makes that experience um uh fit into the correct slot in your brain right. even though you know it's not the best cheese you could put on your burger but there's still something about a burger with american cheese that you know um is is still uh um you know is still good food in your brain and uh fits into a slot even if the same burger with a really good different kind of cheese is still a good burger for you um you know american cheese exists because it crept into the culture when it when it did and uh, yeah uh has become like heinz or or hunts or whatever ketchup you're using well and we talked about this in our episode about the movie the menu where you get to the end of that movie spoilers everybody and anya taylor joy asks for a cheeseburger and voldemort makes her one and there is some discussion in that moment where he says the chef guy says something to the effect of american cheese is the perfect cheese for a burger and they talk about the quality it has of being able to melt but still hold its shape and whatever and it's got the right amount of salt and all this this is the buzzfeedification of my industry there is no <laughs> such thing as the perfect cheese for a burger right that right. doesn't exist right so like let's say you're lactose intolerant guess what the perfect cheese for a burger is no fucking cheese right <laughs> like this is way down to personal preference and i agree there is a nostalgia there is a nostalgia for that that mcdonald's burger or yeah. that burger cane burger that's got that you know melted piece of plastic on top of it that's supposed to look like cheese i don't like american cheese so you're never you could you could tout all of the qualities the, the what you believe <laughs> to be the good qualities of american cheese you're never going to convince me right because i don't like that thing yeah. and i don't like that thing because of whatever reason it doesn't really matter but if you put american cheese on a burger for me it's not going to be my favorite however it also depends on the mix right so like do i want to sit down and listen to one person play an accordion all by themselves no 
I really don't. Yeah. But if it's part of a band and it's a good band, the accordion can work, right? So like there's this pizza place not too far from me called Easy Street Pizza. And I talk, I've talked about them ad nauseum. I love the idea of a mom and pop joint that made it good and they've got three locations. They seem to be rocking and rolling. They also have a double smash burger that's got like caramelized onions and what they call burger sauce, which I'm sure is like Thousand Island dressing or something to that effect, <laughs> and American cheese on it. Guess what? That works as a, as a device. That whole thing together works. Would it be better or worse with a different kind of cheese? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I order it. I eat the whole thing. I feel kind of sick afterward because it's too much food, but I enjoy <laughs> all of it, and it's delicious. And who cares? But if it's just bun, very thin, gross, frozen McDonald's burger patty, American cheese bun, no, that's not for me. <laughs> and you're never going to convince me that that's good. But that's like the whole thing isn't good. It's the American <laughs> cheese is just part of the whole thing not being good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there whatever qualities that are assigned or uh, that you can. Um say about american cheese there are other cheeses that would share those qualities as well yeah so, so it's it's not even just that it, because uh, i mean gouda behaves a lot like american cheese yes it does um so if that if all you're worried about is melty you know how it melts then you could put gouda on there but if you're building a, a burger with gouda you know then you you might build it differently like you were saying um, because it just depends on the, the house that you're building, what materials you use. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it's also, you know, a, a Philly cheesesteak. You're either the, the two kinds, the two major <laughs> kinds of Philly cheesesteak, right? It's you're yep. either provolone or your cheese whiz. Yeah. Um, and cheese whiz again, not cheese. I actually have an affinity for cheese whiz, but those of you that know, I also like a one, probably not surprised. Um, uh, cheese whiz is a cheese food, right? Just, yeah. Yeah, uh, I I don't even know if it says that, like, because <laughs> they don't spell cheese correctly either. So I don't know if they can, you know, legally right. call themselves a cheese food or not. But uh, it's yellow and it's 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 a blinky cheese. It's in the blinky cheese family. Yeah. Um, it's not runny at room temperature, um, but it doesn't take much to get there. It's I I feel for whatever reason, and I don't know why, but in my brain, in the categories of things. It's the tang of cheese. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, do they? Do the astronauts eat cheese whiz? Do not know the answer to that. Uh, cheese whiz. This is from Wikipedia. Cheese whiz is a brand of professional. Pardon me. <laughs> cheese whiz is a brand of processed cheese sauce or spread. So I don't know that it's called cheese food, but cheese sauce apparently. Okay, so it's somewhere between cheese ball yeah. and the stuff they squirt on nachos at the movie theater. Wow. So, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm now. I've now fallen into the Wikipedia on this. <laughs> Dean Southworth, who was part of the original team that developed Cheese Whiz in the 1950s, described a jar he sampled in 2001, which is after a reformulation, as tasting like axle grease. Now, that <laughs> that bears out two questions. The first of which is, what did they change? Because it doesn't say in this Wikipedia article. What did they change in that formulation? And uh, why was Dean ever eating axle grease? Right. <laughs> well, I can only assume that as part of the developmental process <laughs> initially. They were like, okay, we want this texture. We want the texture of axle grease. Yeah. So we should know what that tastes like so we don't get it too close. <laughs> it was their control group was the axle grease. Yikes. Yeah, exactly. Gentlemen, this is what we're aiming for. But we can't fly too close to the sun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> This is just axle grease. We've dyed orange. One of these is—it's a taste test. <laughs> it's a blind taste One, test. 
<laughs> One of these is axle grease we've dyed orange, and the other is actually, uh, we'll come up with a name r- later. Right now we're calling it Cheese Piss, and, uh, you oh, know, uh, we'll uh, give them a try and see which one we like better. We should do an episode where you and I, uh, on the fly, act out pitch meetings for cheese like, not even cheese food products, but just, like, highly processed food products that, if you were to take a step back and look at them now, totally unnecessary, possibly dangerous, right? Like, yeah. like Tang. Like, the guys in, ta- in in the Tang pitch meeting sitting there going, you know what astronauts love? Orange juice. You know what's tough to get into space? <laughs> Heavy-ass orange juice. What if we made it more like cocaine? Like, just way more like cocaine. Right, and so you have a table with orange juice at one end and a pile of coke at the other, and they've got to figure out a way to get those two to meet. <laughs> it's a gradient, <laughs> and we'll, whatever whatever's in the middle here, we will. Uh, that's what we'll package. Oh man, and and the fir- I, I, for that one, I think it's like okay, the further away we can get from actually orange juice, the better, because yeah. at some point and in, in the fifties, I feel like it was like, can we make the most unnatural version of this thing that we possibly can? Um, and uh, and that's what they that's what they went with. And I, I I'm pretty certain that at some point it was like uh, the the milk version of that w- just was became wallpaper paste. Yeah. And um, because it was you know not edible, the 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 most uh, unnatural version of um, milk because I, I guess there's powdered milk, but that's just yep. milk that's been powdered, right? Oh man, so let's talk about that. This is the best accidental segue ever. So, in as much as I want to buy fewer things. And make more things. You still have to buy things to make things out of. Unless you're growing them, right? So, I sent you a picture of uh, a two-pound jug of sour cream powder. Oh, yes. did not buy that. (laughs) For a couple of reasons. One of which is, this is kind of like the same reason that I've never bought malted milk powder. I love chocolate malts so much that if I were to buy malted milk powder... I would die because I would have nothing but malts <laughs> and then I would die of either malnutrition or just like rampant obesity, right? And I'm looking at this sour cream powder like, what could I put this on? Oh, everything. I would put it on popcorn. I would put it – I would make potato chips and I would put it on there. I would like put it into breading for chicken. Like I would go fucking bonkers. And a teaspoon of this stuff has like 92,000 calories and all the fat you need for your whole life, right? Like it's awful. <laughs> but I bet you it's delicious. So I did not buy that. I did buy a two-pound bag of buttermilk powder because my kids uh, enjoy making pancakes and stuff like that. And so what I'm going to do is develop a recipe. I'll probably start with a recipe and then adjust it where I have all of the dry ingredients for pancake. Like, I'm going to reinvent Bisquick for my household, right? I'm going to have all the dry ingredients for a pancake batch, right, in a container. And on the outside of the container, I'll label one cup of this stuff, three quarters of a cup of milk, one egg, uh, four tablespoons of butter melted, and the recipe will just be on the outside. So they can just make pancakes in like five minutes whenever they want. And it'll be great. Uh, buttermilk powder. I opened it up and I tried a little bit of it. No fucking joke. Like you cannot mistake that for anything else. It is buttermilk <laughs> fucking powder. Now the dehydrator I have at home, not going to make buttermilk powder. There's no way for me to put a liquid into that thing and dehydrate it. I just don't have the right, like that's not the right machine for that. Right. Right. Uh, do I want to get one now? Fuck yeah, I do. <laughs> I really do. What are those called? They, they make those like for, uh, uh, home use. 
I so I don't know. I haven't even looked it up because again, this is another super dangerous thing. Could you imagine, Steve, if I could cold brew my own coffee and then dehydrate it into a powder that I could just add to shit? Again, heart attack, or I would have an aneurysm or something, right? Like if I had coffee powder that I made, it would be the worst idea of all time for me. It would be too dangerous. Now, isn't isn't uh, okay? So the instant coffee, a lot of that's freeze dried, right? What's yes. that process? I don't know. A friend of mine has a freeze dryer, but that's an expensive machine that takes a lot of electricity too. Okay. So there are like two expenses to running that thing. My dehydrator, it's a it's a really big hair dryer in a box, yeah. right? So it yeah. doesn't chew up that much electricity, but a freeze dryer does. Now, do I want one of those? Well, yeah, of course I do, but <laughs> I'm not going to get one. Things are like $3,000 and then they're super, they're energy hogs. Yeah. You couldn't just put put your coffee on like a uh, quarter sheet pan, you know, pour a cup of it in there, stick it in your freezer and wait until it, because it'd get freezer burned by the time it got yeah. to the powdery stage, right? Right. Yeah, the idea of freeze drying, as far as I understand, is that there's a little bit of pressure involved, and then as the water freezes and comes to the top, it is like blown off with a high with a fan, and you're left with everything that's not water. Yeah, but I don't really understand the mechanism of that. Me either. <laughs> I did get an ad from my produce company, and we get these ads emailed to us every so often where they have like, hey, it looks like we're going to be way up on romaine. The price has come down. Buy the romaine right now. It'll be bad by Wednesday. And, uh, you know, instead of 56 bucks a case, it'll be 12 I'm like, well, okay, I'll spend 12 bucks to lose a half a case when I would have spent 50 bucks to lose a third of a case anyway because yeah. of how romaine is these days. They sent me a notification, and it went out to everybody. 17 and a half pound bag of freeze-dried raspberries. Nearly $600. And I was like, whatever the cost of this is normally, fuck you. And secondly, no, I don't want that anyway, because 17 and a half pounds of freeze-dried raspberries, which individually would weigh nothing, would be the size of like a body pillow. I don't need anywhere near that. A, I don't need freeze-dried raspberries. B, holy shit, that's a lot of those. Like, I don't know who would use those in their lifetime, right? So I did not buy those. <laughs> is that the only size they come in? $600 seems, I mean, uh, I don't, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know if that's pricey. But for me, that's pricey. Well, unless you're a high-end bakery that uses them for garnish or something, I don't even know. I haven't used a whole lot of freeze-dried products because I don't I don't operate in those particular circles anymore. Right? Like my fine dining days are behind me. My high-end bakery days are probably ahead of me. You know, like I'm just not in that area right now. Uh, w- would that be used for like uh Muffins? Would you put freeze-dried anything in muff- in a muffin? Uh, maybe. Maybe in a muffin I, mix? Yeah, I didn't know how close to a dow berry it was. Mm, I don't know. I know a lot of times people will take freeze-dried berries. I've done this with just dehydrated berries where you grind them up really finely and dust stuff with them. It's a really potent flavor and you don't need a lot of it, which is great because it's really expensive to produce, I guess. One of the things that I want to do this year with some of my tomatoes is work on getting, not like a sun-dried tomato, but, you know, taking the cherry tomatoes I'm going to get and dehydrating some of them. And basically making sort of like sun-dried tomatoes, but they would just be regular dehydrated tomatoes. What I would use those for? No idea. But, like, I just want to have some of those. Because maybe I'm not using them because I don't have them. Because sun-dried tomatoes really expensive you know like what it is is it's electricity and labor and time anytime a producer of something is sitting on a product and they can't sell it for a certain amount of time it gets more expensive yeah 
And so if I... I just have to super devalue my time. And it's also passive time. If I throw something in the dehydrator, like the orange peels that I'm now dehydrating for our buddy uh, Peter over at uh, Crooked Barn Charcuterie in Vermont, I'm I'm not doing anything. I'm not sitting there like blowing on the <laughs> orange peels to get them to dehydrate. Pumping the bellows. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm paying for the electricity, I guess, but that's coming out of my household budget anyway. And I'm not making any money on it, so I sort of don't care. But like we talked about with mushrooms, right? Like the difference between me buying mushrooms, washing them, cutting them up, throwing them in the dehydrator, and buying dehydrated mushrooms, they're like four times more expensive to buy them. Yeah. I wish I could grow mushrooms. That's one of the few things that, <laughs> I've been sort of bragging about like, oh yeah, I got this greenhouse in my basement. I got people going, yeah, I got mushrooms growing in my basement. And I'm like, yeah, but probably not on purpose, right? I th- can't you grow mushrooms? Like I've seen uh, when I've been looking for gardening stuff, they have the weird bags that they uh, yeah. grow out of. Sorry, it just got really dark outside. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh yeah, it's about to rain here. Okay. Uh. Like it got really dark out. I'm glad <laughs> I'm in the basement. Uh, you can. So a couple of years ago, my wife bought me a log that somebody, this company had drilled holes in and they had inoculated it with shiitake mushroom spores. And uh, it did not work for me. I don't know that I followed the directions correctly. I, it was also, she got it for me at Christmas time and I tried to grow them in the basement over the winter and it was just too cold or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, there's, what is it? There's a company out of Portland that does a, it looks like an old timey, uh, square like half gallon milk carton that has it's full of like coffee grounds and other stuff and it's got these like doors in it and you immerse the whole thing in water you pull it out you open those doors up and mushrooms are supposed to grow out of them i've never used a system like that but depending no reason not to you know yeah so you had a shiitake pet right (laughs) that that never uh never grew its hair um, do mushrooms light? I mean, would you need uh, how much light would you need for for those? I mean, they like they do need some, or they're not green, so there's no photosynthesis, right? No, I don't know that they need much, if any. Okay, light because they are, you know, fungus live in that liminal space between being a plant and an animal and some sort of a space alien we don't really understand. <laughs> and so, yeah, I the thing with mushrooms is getting them to not grow, right? Like it's a fungus; they're they're all over the place. And uh, that's, again, that same thing with um, putting cinnamon on your citrus seeds while you're trying to sprout them. That prevents fungal growth because they're just trying to grow all over. If it were up to mushrooms, they would be in charge of the planet completely. <laughs> and this has nothing to do with uh, watching uh, the rest of the us. The Last of us. us? The Last of Us, yeah. The Rest of Us. Maybe that's season two, The Rest of Us. <laughs> I have one more thing I wanted to talk about. Pickles. So, Steve, have you ever made pickles on purpose? No. Okay. I, and I, I I never would. <laughs> okay. Well, of course. You never would. So, I am in the process of trying to figure out what sort of thing, because I am still thinking about making a side hustle this summer. What sort of thing I want to do? Because generally, I make cheater pickles, right? I make quick pickles, where you take cucumbers, you put them into a jar... With garlic and pickling spices and fresh dill or whatever and some onions. You heat up white distilled vinegar or apple cider vinegar with sugar and salt. And then when it's boiling, you dump it on top of those cucumbers and you throw a lid on it. And you put the whole thing in the fridge. And after three or four days, pickles, right? That's the cheating way to do pickles. That's not fermentation. That's not any sort of... uh, I mean, it is valid. That is a valid way to make a pickle. 
but it's the easiest possible way to do it, right? And that's how you make bread and butter pickles. That's how you make like the dills that go into a Chicago style hot dog, whatever. However, I was given a cookbook a couple of years ago, Middle Eastern cookbook. And I was leafing through it because I was reorganizing my cookbooks on the shelf. And I saw this beautiful picture of these um, Persian pickled cucumbers. And I was like, those are adorable. And those are one of the varieties that I'm growing this summer. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll do this with it. So here's the process. You wash them. You stick them in a jar. Again, pickling spices, uh, which is like black pepper, uh, bay leaf, uh, mustard seed, cumin seed. I think that might be it. Fresh garlic. And then you throw in what really does look like a dangerous amount of salt. It's <laughs> like... A quarter cup of salt to like two and a half cups of water. It's so much salt that it doesn't all dissolve right away, right? <laughs> and you put it right straight into the jar. You put water in the jar to cover the cucumbers. And then you weight it down a little bit so that they stay in under the liquid. You put a lid on it and you leave it out at room temperature. And that's the part that makes me nervous. Because anything happening at room temperature with food, again, fungus. You wait two days. Throw the whole jar into the fridge on day three. Day four, take them out, slice them up, and eat them. Uh, fucking delicious. Easiest thing in the world, super delicious. Do I know for a fact that's fermentation? No, I don't. I don't think it is. It's a salt-cured pickle. It is super good. So I made a bunch of those at work. They're really, really good. The community that I serve loved them. I'm making more right now. But the garlic that's in there is deadly. Because <laughs> if you pickle, if you hot do, if you do a quick hot pickle with garlic, like I have in the past, and you just like eat one, it's kind of still raw, but the acidity takes some of that like garlicky bite away, and it's a little sweet because it's taken in some of the sugar and all that. <laughs> if you salt brine cucumbers to make pickles, and you have garlic in there too, all it does is make the garlic really salty. <laughs> I ate one, and I was like, oh, this is a powerful thing. And you know that feeling you get where, like, you start to salivate a lot because you're going to throw up? I felt that nearly immediately. <laughs> I fought it down. I used to drink a lot, ladies and gentlemen. I'm really good at not throwing up. I fought it down, and I was like, maybe I got a bad one because I make bad decisions sometimes. And so I ate another one. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying not to throw anything away. And this was a good two handfuls of garlic, right? This is like 30 cloves of garlic. So I brought them home. Slice them as thinly as I possibly could. Put them in the dehydrator. Keep in mind they're already salted. They got crispy and I was able to crush them up. And now I have house-made garlic powder that's already seasoned with salt. And I'm putting that shit on popcorn today because I've been waiting to make some popcorn. Nice. So, like, I'm in this mode of, like, don't throw anything away. Figure out a way to make something out of everything. And, uh, yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you do pickling and especially if you do fermenting, I would love to learn more because I am I'm ignorant of the process. Anything I've ever fermented has been on accident. Like, you know, you clean out that top shelf of your fridge and you're like, that shouldn't be bubbly. That is what I've done in the past. I've <laughs> never done it on purpose. And I want to make sure, A, that I'm safe and B, that I can make a thing that's good. You know, fermentation controlled is a method of preservation right? That's where beer yeah. comes from. That's where wine comes from. That's where pickles come from. All that kind of stuff. So if I could be doing it on purpose, great. That'd be awesome. 
I now I do have a couple of questions about this. One is, um, when did you notice that the fruit flies all went for the traps? Because if it was the day you ate the two cloves of garlic, it may not have been the coffee grounds that drove them to fruit fly, fruit fly suicide. Um, uh, and the other thing is, so how how much like a vinegar pickle do they taste? Like, if you were to have them side by side, would you would you be like, yeah, these are both pickles, or, or would you be like, this is a pickle and this is something else? So they're definitely both pickles, but these ones they're just they're just different. So like, you will eat it and go, okay, I know that this is a salt brined pickle, and this other one is a vinegar quick pickle, right? Like, so for lunch, ladies and gentlemen, again, if this is your first episode, you endured with us for forty five minutes. So fucking <laughs> congratulations. I run the food service all scratch for a nursery through eighth grade day school here in Chicago. And I employ five cooks and we do amazing stuff to the point where the parents still come in. And after seven years of doing this, they're like, I never ate like this when I was a kid. And I'm like, I didn't either. Like at what point in our schooling did we have folks who were taking such good care of us in the food service operation that they were able to put out three different kinds of house made pickles one day to just be like, hey, taste the difference between these. Right. Because I make a bread and butter pickle. I make a kosher dill like uh, spear for hot dogs. And -hmm. then I made these uh, Persian pickles. And I had kids coming up to me with a plate where they're like, I've got one of each. I'm going to try them. I'm like, fucking great. I didn't say that part. You know, I was like, that's awesome. (laughs) You know, do the science and, and come back and tell me. And, you know. You will know right. You obviously wouldn't like them at all, but you would know right away if you like a salt brined pickle or not, because this is, from what I understand, a good example of it. I did a good job. It turns out. I generally don't follow recipes, but this one, because it was my first time, I thought I should follow this recipe. I executed a good salt brined pickle, and uh, people either dug it or they were like, "I know what that is, and I do not want it." <laughs> you know, some of the kids at the school really like a sweet pickle. Some just like that straight dill spear and some of the people uh i saw people making sandwiches with this pickle on it we had a barbecue pulled chicken sandwich i saw people throwing the pickle on there it was people were having fun we're out it's a 20 pound of cucumber batch and we were out in two days (laughs) these it's uh 600 and some odd people that we serve and they ate and that was just one of the three pickles that i made and we're out of that one 20 pounds of cucumbers gone nice yeah Sliced, I would like to say, fairly thinly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of sweet pickles. And I don't know what, it, I, well, I've decided I don't like cucumber. Ah, yeah. Um, you know, I can eat a cucumber, like slices of cucumber in a salad without any issue, but I don't want to just sit down and eat a cucumber. So that's probably part of the reason that I'm not a big fan of pickles. And sweet pickles are just, there's just a little something weird. I think I had a bad experience with tartar sauce. Um, speaking of like food we got in school, yeah, I'm sure it was probably on some weird fish sandwich that we had in school, yep. elementary school, and and so part of it like sweet any kind of pickle relish is a textural thing with me, um, because I think it it triggers that bad experience with tartar sauce in my brain, and uh, so so I'm not any pickle relish isn't good, and I think maybe the sweet pickles especially, and then I don't think I'm a fan of dill either. Ah. I think it's yeah. something I can do a little bit of, but uh, but but I'm just uh, so so I think that's the other portion of it. So I was like, I I would try a uh, fermented pickle um, to to give it a go. I'm I probably wouldn't like it, but I definitely would be curious to know how it where it fits in my brain. Considering the the other pickles, I definitely 
am not a fan of. But I yeah. like salt and vinegar potato chips, so I don't know. My brain's just messed up. Well, and two things about that. First off, it's worth acknowledging that a lot of our, and this isn't just food, ladies and gentlemen, but a lot of our tastes and proclivities and stuff come from childhood experiences. I'm not going to say trauma. I'm not jumping on that bandwagon. <laughs> but, like, you are raised in a certain way by people who don't know what they're doing. Right. As a parent, I'm going to tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, your parents did not know what they were doing. <laughs> Especially if they were like child psychologists or something. But they were doing their best. And they were raised by people who didn't know what they were doing either. And so uh, my parents did a great job. There are still things that I don't like because I wasn't exposed to them. There are things that I don't like because my mom didn't cook them well, which is not her fault. You can't do everything well. There are things that I don't like because... I was told I was allergic to them, and I wasn't, which was not malicious. It was a mistake, right? Like, that sort of thing. So it's worth acknowledging that's where that comes from and maybe doing, like, what you were just saying, trying to see if now you can – now you'll dig it, right? My mom doesn't like dill. I don't like dill because she never used it, right? Yeah. And the first time I had it, I was like, the fuck is that, right? <laughs> I have sort of come around on dill, but it has to be. It's like American cheese. It has to be – I'm not just going to eat dill, Right? right. <laughs> a dill pickle as part of that band? Great. There's a dill soft, like a sandwich roll that I used to make, which is amazing. And I don't know what it is about it, but it's really, really good. Um, it's like a brioche roll, kind of. And the dill, it just works so well with that. And then you make a sandwich out of it, and it works well in that band, right? Now, fennel. Ooh, fennel is still a tough sell with me. Like, if you're making a grilled fennel, like a salad with a lot of citrus i'm in if you're just like here's some fennel no no no, no, no. <laughs> and it's got that same sort of a flavor profile however if you legitimately don't like something it's okay to just not like it right again like me with american cheese i just don't like it am yeah. i gonna say hey fuck you american cheese not really kind of because it's funny but like i also don't you don't have to like everything i tell my kids the same thing you don't have to like it but you do have to try it and then they're yeah. like oh i tried it i don't like that thing that's fine we the the experiment is over <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> yeah and, and i mean we've i've never been uh too judgy and i don't think you have either but there are those people that are be like uh like because you know kayla does not like cheese it's not an allergy yeah you know yeah. or anything like that she just does not like cheese um, and she is always terrified about people. Well, have you tried brie? Yeah. <laughs> have you tried camembert? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, no, it's just like n no cheese. And I did look it up once, and there's a very small subset of the population where um, their brains um, interpret cheese as bad milk. It's yeah. milk that has gone bad. You should spit this out. It's not good. Um, they still have that part of their brain, you know, from who knows when um, in the evolutionary history of the of, of humans that that where that was needed. And so yeah. uh, and so they just don't you know, they don't do cheese and they know when they they put cheese in their mouth because it triggers that spit this out response um, in their brain. So, yeah, she um, she she doesn't like cheese, but I've, I've never been like, well, here's a here's a cheese you've never tried. Try this cheese uh, because all cheese. Unless it's American cheese, <laughs> comes from you know some sort of milk that has been aged and yada yada yada. But uh, uh, yeah, so it's like um, there's no there's no reason to judge anyone about that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, may, I I don't know if there's a is if there's a, a Venn diagram of what you're what you can judge people about. I don't <laughs> mind being judged about condiments, for example. Like yeah. I get it. You know, I'm weird with condiments. I I I make no. Uh, um, proclamations about being right <laughs> in how I view condiments, but I've come around on a lot of things too. Like the the mustards that you sent us, 
we tried all those mustards, and some of those mustards were legitimately good. And I'm not someone who you know has a history of putting mustard on anything. Yeah. Um, I I I'm not a huge horseradish fan, but at, at one time in my life I'd been like horseradish, bleh. and now yeah. I'm like I understand why people put horseradish on. Uh, ham or on a beef prime rib. Uh, yep. Yeah, I I get it. I understand why that works. Um, and I would do. A, I'd probably do a lot less than than some people do, but I would still do some. You know, now now I'm at a point where it's like that's not going to ruin anything for me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. We all have people. You know, you you develop your tastes for for reasons, and yeah. and that's you know they they can be your own. They don't have to be uh, explained every time. Yeah, and it is, it's also interesting to me in a social sense that, like, the people who are most quick to offer stuff like that, like, you don't like cheese. Oh, but have you ever tried, you know, the uh, Humboldt Fog? They're trying to do a couple of things. The first thing is, is they're, they're kind of, they tend to be kind of hipstery about it, where they're like, well, I know yes. the secret cheese that you'll like. And so it's a certain amount of, of superiority. Generally, I would say it's not because unless they're selling cheese, it doesn't benefit them at all to turn you around on cheese. Right. Right. The other thing that's happening there is that those are the people who, when you suggest stuff to them, either they get offended or they've already tried it and they hate it too. So like yeah. <laughs> if if somebody were to tell me they're vegan and I'm like, yeah, but have you ever tried lamb? Like I'm going to get <laughs> shot in the street for that. But these are the same people who are going to be like. And I'm just like, well, no, I, I am an omnivore. And like, oh, but have you ever had quinoa? I'm like, fuck off. Yes, I've had quinoa. <laughs> Get out of my face. So it's it's a bit of that dish it but can't take it sort of thing, in my experience. Again, maybe I developed this hatred of people who do that early on when I was a child. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I feel like it's it definitely, definitely that. I, I love that, too, because, like, yeah, I'm a vegan. Well, have you ever tried suckling pig? <laughs> <laughs> Like, See if no. you have if you have veal, it hasn't been an animal that long. All right, right. <laughs> it's almost still a plant. What about eggs? You know that they they were never really even born. Yeah, <laughs> they were never going to be chickens. These <laughs> eggs were they would never be chickens. You could sit on this thing oh, you were blue in man. the face, and I have. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like some of them too are is because they just don't believe you. Yeah. Um, well, like, right. <laughs> I don't need to be your friend. <laughs> End of story. It's and it goes back to that for some, it's the buzzfeedification of my industry that everything has to have a ranking, everything has to have a list, everything has to be the best or the worst. And it's like, how about this? Human experience is wide and varied and has a huge spectrum of experiences. And if you want to say to me, can I get a burger with no cheese? I don't like cheese. I'm not going to be like, but have you tried, you know, Roquefort, which is like this super strong blue cheese? Because you're going to be like, motherfucker, I just told you I don't like cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going, but this is the best cheese for a burger, according to a BuzzFeed list from 2017. And you're going to be like, I'm going to a different restaurant, yeah. right? Like, you like what you like after a while. And as long as it's not hurting anybody else, who cares? Yeah. Listen, I don't like being stabbed, but have you been stabbed with a bat lift? <laughs> it's like, well, no, that's not going to change the experience for me. I still, still don't want to be stabbed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh and and if you're one of those people that's like like you just said the the human experience is many and varied myriad you know um versions of of what it uh the the experience of being human like innumerable so if you think that your experience is normative a you're Elon Musk and b you're both wrong <laughs> yeah yeah i unless you are selling something 
there's no reason to then offer that opinion when somebody's already said definitively no, right? If I'm at a food show and I go up to a place and they are like, oh, we have chickpea pasta. And I'm like, hmm, I don't like chickpea pasta, man. And they go, but have you tried ours? Valid. Because they want me to buy theirs. That's yeah, their yeah. thing. If I'm walking down the street to go mail some packages <laughs> and somebody comes up to me and is like, hey, you want some chickpea pasta? And I'm like, hmm, nah, I don't really like it. And they're like, yeah, but if you had mine, I'd be like, I don't know who the fuck you are. <laughs> a, I'm trying to go to the post office. Uh, what is going on right now? I just told you a thing. And now you're trying to foist. Why are you walking around with chickpea pasta, man? So, yeah, it's you got to you got to pick your time. Yeah. If yeah, you want to sell me cheese, that's a real easy sell. The, yeah, the reason, the real reason, I think, like that Sears, J.C. Penney's, all these companies are are uh, uh, big box stores, department stores are folding, is because you can't walk through without getting spritzed with some sort of cologne. Like right. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to walk through a restaurant and have someone shove something in my mouth. I don't want to walk through a store and s- s- smell like uh, something that I didn't buy. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I haven't been in a department store in so long. I'm shocked that that's still a practice. I believe you, but yeah, it would be worth it to carry around a little, like a like one of the not pressurized, but just uh, trigger action super soakers with something <laughs> else in it, like a sanitizer or bleach or something. You just spray them back. Like, you want some of that? How about that? How's that smell? Well, you know, to be fair, I, I mean, I haven't been in a department store in a long time either, and I don't think I w- I'd, I've ever uh, actually been spritzed um, <laughs> without my permission. But uh, I, I would hold my breath going through there because my hay fever being what it is, I can, you know, walk through. And it's always the section in the mall, like, where you would walk in to try before you'd get to where you actually wanted to be. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So I would have to – I would hold my breath because otherwise I would have a headache by the time I got to, you know, I just need a pair of jeans or whatever it was. Um so uh that's the jc penny in the new mall in traverse city michigan the new mall which is what everyone calls it has been there for 30 years <laughs> the old mall which is what everybody calls it is now like three very sad big box stores in what is now a renovated walking mall kind of a thing with like one dip and dots <laughs> like one dot one dip and dot <laughs> dip and dot they've been downgraded yeah <laughs> it's inflation man it's one yeah. dot but it's huge <laughs> This is all the astronaut. This is all the future can afford right now. <laughs> it's like the size of a grapefruit. Yeah. One dot. It's like the meatball place, but. Just... <laughs> Man. All right. So I think that takes care of everything that I had wanted to start the show with. What else do you want to talk about today, Steve? Okay. Well, this I do. I do want to talk about this. So I did. Did we mention when we went to the uh, Maple Syrup Festival in Jones, not too far away from here? Is that the one where you were really disappointed about? Uh, yeah, we were. Um, uh, we were. We. It was. It was one sugar shack um, right. that was doing their thing, and it. We. We felt it was kind of sad. Um, so, w- yesterday we went to the Vermontville Maple Syrup Festival. Uh, I believe it's called Vermontville because when it was founded, they they thought they wanted to do maple syrup and and uh so they named it after vermont which is where ma- a lot of maple syrup comes from right i'm also completely making that up i have no idea why they call it vermont <laughs> um but that those are the connections my brain makes so they have a maple syrup festival because there's i guess there's a few sugar shacks around there sure however we went there and we had like kale and i had a list of things we we're going to try to look for like maybe they have th- these kind of maple syrup things and 
it was everyone you ever grew up with descending on a very small Michigan town and plus carnival rides is is what this was. So, I mean, it was legitimately bigger, but it was also like way overwhelming. And we saw so little maple syrup stuff <laughs> that it was bizarre. Like the first maple syrup thing we saw as when you're driving into town and also, and, and I don't know whether this was from living in Orlando for as long as I did, from living in Chicago as long as I did, or 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 whether I just have a warped version of what how organized festivals should be. But as you're coming into town, suddenly you're just finding cars parked alongside of the road, and the road is, you know, three quarters as wide as it normally is because there's cars parked on yeah. both sides. And you just try to find a parking spot, and then you walk the rest of the way into town because there's no, like, designated spark parking spot. And uh, the, it just kind of starts where the road block is blocked off, and there's a carnival ride. There's the Ferris wheel. It's like, <laughs> oh, I guess we're there. Um, and, like, I feel like Orlando and Chicago were – a lot more organized when it came to that kind of thing, like uh, in terms of setting setting up the boundaries of where things began and ended. And right, uh, but anyways, so you're also before you hit the cars or about right about the time you hit the the where the cars are parked. There's like a, a uh, camper trailer in someone's front yard, and it's maple syrup, and they just have some maple syrup out on a table, and it's like your uh, chickpea pasta guy walking down the street. is like, where did you get this syrup? I don't know who you are. Why do I want to buy syrup from your front yard? Is this like syrup garage sale? Um, and that I, seemed to I be... would I would go to a syrup garage sale. <laughs> well, if it's just about the syrup, um, <laughs> you know, you know what you're getting into. But that's kind of like what this. It seemed like there were a lot of little tables set up, ah. but but there was, and I think there was a sugar shack there, kind of in town that we didn't actually make it over to. So to be fair, they may have a, had a lot more like maple syrup oriented stuff. But and I guess they crowned the. Uh, um, Maple syrup queen, or as I like to call her, Mrs. Sticky Fingers. Um, <laughs> uh, so they, they, she was crowned, and there was a parade. And Kayla and I didn't do it, but my parents and my sister and her kids did the the band boosters. Local band boosters was doing the pancake breakfast all day, mm-hmm. uh, pancakes, and everyone said the pancakes were legitimately very good. My uh, eldest niece had three of them, and they were as big as your head. Ah. Um, so uh, the pancakes were evidently very good. Um, which Kayla and I didn't have. We had some French fries, and they were also very good, but they're, you know, there was nothing maple syrup about them. Right. They're just like carnival fries. You Ooh, know, the if, fries you were you to, get at a, if you were to do a maple sweet potato fry, that'd be really good. Like if you were to yeah. do a maple sugar dusting kind of a thing when they came out, that'd be good. Well, and so we, we ended up feeling really bad about how we felt about the first one we went to because, yes, it was small, but it was very maple syrup-centric. Ah, you know, and they had a little. They had their little corner in in the barn that was pretty much the maple syrup festival. There, they had they had some pets and stuff, and I think they had a hayride that you could take to to more of a petting zoo kind of area. And they had a lumberjack show going on on there. So I we felt a lot better about the first one that we went to, being much more in terms of like a festival oriented around a thing. Yeah. Um, and they would have they had like uh, maple maple syrup salt and or or maple syrup you know sh- stuff to shake onto things and they had just oodles of stuff at the first one maybe it was at this other one but it was just so frenetic and there were so many um, junior high and high school kids there to do the carnival rides um, that it was it, it, almost impossible to find they had a flea market area that I think was legitimately just flea market it wasn't like maple <laughs> syrup. Um, um, themed or anything like that um so it was it was a little overwhelming and and seemed to be um a a lot the other one was your uh um 
your garlic powder or whatever it was you said that it was so strong <laughs> yeah. that you only need a little bit of. That was the first one. It was like, okay, this is like the condensed version. And this one was your watered down ketchup from uh, <laughs> um, restaurant B. Yeah. Uh, that is like, yeah, it, I guess it's still maple syrup oriented, but it's, um, it, it, we, you know, we didn't find, we didn't tick off anything on our list because there were way too many people and we didn't know where to go to find anything. There were zero maps. Yeah. The, and, and I mean, yeah, small town. So it's like what? Three blocks maybe. Um, so maybe you don't really need a map, but we, the first thing we wanted to try to find was the uh, pancake breakfast. Um, and we did find it. So, uh, um, but it took a minute because there was no, uh, <laughs> no good way to find anything. My thought was that when the carnival ride showed up, they're like, yeah, just set up where, when you get here and whoever's the last gets the worst spot. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Very few things are as instantly disappointing to me as going to something like that and finding out that it's not what what you thought it was and yes you bring a certain thing to an experience right but if it's a maple syrup festival what you're bringing to it is man i'm gonna see some maple syrup and if they don't have that then you can't really be faulted for having expected that right and there is a town outside of uh, outside of chicago in illinois and i'm i'm also not gonna blast them but i don't remember what town it was that has an apple festival every year we've been there we were talking about this yes and we went and it was not an apple festival it sounds like looking at the history of it it used to be a huge apple festival because that area grew a lot of apples. And they always had some sort of a big old fucking jamboree every year. And there were a lot of apples around. And that's what I expected. I wanted a bluegrass band. I wanted giant bushel baskets of like 40 different kinds of apples at 10 different vendors. I wanted uh, caramel apples. I wanted apple cider donuts. I wanted apple cider. I wanted that kind of thing. It was 0% that. Like, to the point where we had trouble finding more than two or three varieties of apple being sold anywhere. It was a town expo. Like, it was more of a thing where all of the businesses were having sidewalk sales and there was like a fancy chocolatier in town that we went and got stuff from but i wasn't in town for a chocolate festival there were a lot of like yard art you know spinny uh windmills and shit that had had chimes on them and stuff that was all out of one spot there was like a pumpkin painting table for kids which is also pumpkins are not made out of apples and it was Had I known that's what we were going to, I would have tempered my expectations. I would have been like, we're going to a weird uh, middle of Illinois art festival that might have an apple or two, but for the most part has like old people, conservative old people, uh, a fire truck that did a single (laughs) vehicle parade, and lots of expensive shit to buy, like stained glass owls and shit. Like it was just, it was weird. And it was not an Apple Festival, but it had been an Apple Festival like 70 years ago. And the apples had just been falling off the cart the whole time to the point where there were like 10 apples at this thing. I wanted thousands. I I guess was the only one. Everybody else had a great time. Everybody who was there was having a great time. My family had a great time. And I was like, where's the fucking apples, man? (laughs) You know. And the motion to change the name to the Octogenarian Fire Truck Festival uh, did not pass. So they still call it the Apple Festival. (laughs) Yard art jamboree. Like, I don't know. It's it was not my favorite experience. And I tried not to be a downer about it because, again, my kids and my wife had a great time. Everybody who was there seemed to be having a great time. But it was also like you were saying, the small town thing. Everybody there also knew each other. They were just outside at the same time, you know, like 
And this one was really, there were maps, it was well organized. There were maps, there were maps that led to parking. Parking was many and varied, just like the human experience itself. And parking all <laughs> over the place in different places that kept people off of the main street, probably to stay out of the way of that one fire truck. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know, like it was a well-run festival that had nothing to do with apples. I felt yeah. cheated. <laughs> yes. Well, and I feel like uh, for Vermontville, I think it it could it had to have been more people than were just in Vermontville because whatever singular cell phone tower was there was a little overtaxed. Sure. Um, so texts were taking hours to get through, that kind of thing. Um, and just the, judging by the amount of people I saw, I'm sure that I saw more uh, than the number of people that live in Vermontville, um, just numbers-wise. And uh, I would... I would have my expectations would have been more uh, appropriately aligned if they would have called it the Vermontville um, uh, Fair. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it it that's it was it was a fair. It was a carnival. It wasn't it wasn't a maple syrup festival beyond uh, a couple tables with jugs of maple syrup that are the same jugs you see everywhere. Yeah, and maybe those are just the jugs that you buy to put syrup in if you're a sugar shack. I don't know. But then, and you know, in the glass maple leaves. Yeah, yeah. You know that that kind of thing. But it wasn't like the other place where it was like, hey, we've got these different kinds of like. There's a guy behind a little table with uh, um, little little ketchup cups to pour syrup in for taste. No, yep. it was little spoons for tasting different kinds of maple syrup and different maple products and. Um, yeah, so but but I mean, so it was the Vermontville Fair is really what it was, and uh, the, the my nieces had a great time because they went on a bunch of rides and ate a bunch of pancakes. So, um, you know, no complaints there by any means. It was just not what I expected, and just I was also super surprised that so many people turned out. But it might be the first thing that's gone on with decent weather ah, <laughs> recently. Gotcha. So maybe everyone was crawling out of their rock to get a little sun. So this is from uh, 99WFMK.com, which I imagine is a radio station. Vermontville was established in 1836, a year after a reverend from Vermont, Sylvester Cochran, traveled here looking for a permanent home. So he oh, named so it after his state that he was born in. Because he, uh, I don't want to forget, I'm, I'm never going to remember that uh, where I live if I don't call it Vermont something. Right. <laughs> And Sylvester right. Cochran, that's the recasting of Zephram Cochran, as played by Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> and I would watch that. And Gage. <laughs> would totally watch that movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's just called Vermontville because that's where the guy was from. Which makes, yeah. I mean, a lot of places have been named that. You know, uh, uh, New York. Uh, the Pilgrims New left from Plymouth and they ended up at Plymouth. That's not yes. my joke, but that's exactly accurate. <laughs> yep. So, yep, makes sense. So nothing, uh, and then maybe it was like, hey, it's called Vermontville, let's grow some maple trees. Maybe that's how yeah. that came about. Um, I bet he liked it, because lots of Michigan looks like Vermont, except flatter. So yeah. he probably got there and he was like, fuck, no hills, this is great. Yeah. Look at all I'll these be beautiful trees and shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now, I was wondering if we could segue into this article you sent me about the restaurant near you that closed and is turning itself into an event space. Because I remember sure. we talked about it, but I don't remember what we talked about. Like what yeah. we said about it necessarily. Well, I, I sent it to you because I thought it was interesting. So yeah, it's this this place in town, um, Create Bar and Grill, is what it was called. I don't know if they're gonna do the name change or not. I don't think it's changed ownership, but it's been it's been open for two years, and there was just an article in the local local quote unquote paper, <laughs> <laughs> um, the local uh, publication or whatever, uh, mentioning that it was closing as a restaurant and it was going, but it was going to remain. Um, an event space, and they were going to do catering. 
And um, I sent that to you, and I think I said, so two years is about right um, in yeah. terms of restaurants making some sort of major change or or ceasing to exist or whatever. Um, that was my initial thought. And, and then my other thoughts were Kayla and I never went because – of their their concept which i'm not faulting necessarily just niles might not be the best place for it because they would do like whatever like wednesday is painting night right so there would be people there and i think maybe you could still come and eat but i don't know because it kind of scared us away maybe but it was like people would be painting have their easels out and painting and also you could eat (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then there'd be maybe there'd be a sculpture night remember and then they'd have music sometimes so um it was supposed to be a creative space as well as a restaurant but i never knew which was taking precedent right right well and so this i'm going to quote from this article because this is an all too common theme quote create first opened its dine-in services in february 2021 after experiencing delays due to covid what i'm going to say about that is that they were probably supposed to open February 2020, which means that they had been in the planning process for opening this joint since summer 2018, right? Yeah. It was too late and they had too much money sunk in to stop, right? Fair. I know lots of this story. This happened constantly uh, throughout this pandemic. Back to the article. It offered guests a mix of menu options, including handcrafted burgers, sandwiches, salads, pastas, cocktails, and more. The restaurant also embraced the arts by featuring art galleries and hosting live music and paint sessions. Steve, you're absolutely right. This feels like from one direction, it sounds like an awesome idea. But at the same time, I don't know how you do that and control it and plan for it in a strictly retail sense, right? So, like, let's say you have a restaurant and you also have a painting session. People are going to be signing up for probably one or the other. I don't know that you're going to get, unless it's tied together, unless it's like, come and paint with this local painter who's going to show you the ropes, whatever, the brushes. And here's what it costs, and we have these appetizers out, or we have this limited menu available, whatever. If you're not tying the food part and the event part together, that's got to be really tough to control. And I've said this for years now. When I first started my job that I have now, I had people making fun of me because they said, oh, you're a lunch lady. And I was like, you guys have no fucking idea how awesome this job is. (laughs) Everything within reason is controlled. I know how many people I'm serving every day. I know exactly what the menu is. I know what to make, when to make it, how much, when it needs to go out. And then I also have a plan in place for my waste, right? Like, sorry, everybody. When I have barbecue chicken left over one day and I have uh, chicken tortilla soup the next day, guess where that soup came from? (laughs) It's not a retail operation. I'm not making money off of it. I need to use the waste before it becomes waste. I need to use the extra before it becomes waste because then that decreases my food cost and I look really good. That's my job. That's my whole job. So much of what I do is controlled and that's the point. If you're running a retail operation like a restaurant and you're also throwing in this thing which is counter to that, that is based on ticket sales, that's a tough thing to square. And I think what you were saying off mic that they're moving to specifically an event space, specifically catering, that probably fits better with the art part of it than with the food service part of it. And I applaud them for that. Yeah, it seemed like a, it seemed like an intelligent um, pivot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I just, I mean, I would, 
I imagine there'd be times I'd walk into a place and be like, oh, it's karaoke night. Let's go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so I can imagine like if I were to, I, I, I couldn't think I, this seemed like a place I would need to plan to go to, not a place you just walk in. Hey, let's just right. go to let's go to Create Barn Grill because um, then you'd have to be like, oh, well, let's check to see what's going on there. tonight. <laughs> yeah. Um, unless they were, and again, I not having been, I don't know exactly how they set it up. Maybe it was very distinct, like that's the painting area, this is the seating area. They did a great job. They the, some beautiful murals in the parking lot on the fence that kind of surrounds the parking lot, um, uh, and uh, the building looks great. They did a really good job with all the aesthetics in terms of transforming what the building was into into kind of their vision for things. So I hope their catering and event thing goes well. I think the area needs an event space um because i don't think there are that many around so hopefully uh they get that going but i just i could never figure out uh you know it's like well yeah and i don't know if they charge like i imagine they charge if you're going to paint but if i'm just coming there to eat a do i want to watch people paint while i eat (laughs) and b you know do i need a ticket for the painting to get the food so i was it was confusing to me overly confusing um one of the reasons we never kind of ventured that way uh, but conceptually, we thought it was kind of cool, but we just never, you know. So we talked about this in the, like, in the real meaty thigh of the pandemic, we talked about this. Like, we just sort of theorized, you and I, what happens if restaurants don't get to open back up on the terms that we've known restaurants for the last two, three hundred years, right? And one of the things you and I came up with was sort of like the the private club thing in florida or california which is just like yeah maybe you pay a membership fee and you get to go to a restaurant with a very specific group of people who have all recently tested negative for covid and you get to have roughly a restaurant experience but it's exclusive right i think this is more of the model that we're going to see sort of popping up which is this will be a space that isn't invite only it's not subscription based it's not a membership but it is we cater we have so we have in-house catering events sometimes. We have a music space that will also be serving food during the shows. We have events that we curate that will also have food, but it's all very controlled. So there's a a place called Hey Nani, which is I have a tough time saying that name out loud because it is kind of terrible. But it is a music venue up in Arlington Heights, which is northwest of the city of Chicago, that has an amazing food scene. And you can sit at a table. It's a great old guy music venue. So for me, it's perfect. You can go and sit down, have a charcuterie plate and a couple of cups of coffee and watch a band play live. It's rad, right? And when you buy a ticket, you buy a ticket for a specific seat at a specific table. I bought two because I thought a friend of mine was going to go with me and then he wasn't able to go. So I had two spaces at a table, which was awesome. And then I ordered food and such. So if you're doing it that way, that could be a, a, a controllable model for something that's close to a restaurant service, but is also not. And if you also have a bar that does a la carte service, you're probably golden. So if that area looks like it needs to have a bar that people could just eat at, but that is separate from the event space, separate from whatever the dining room is or whatever the venue, the music venue, that would be open all the time. I I feel like that would be a good sort of a multifaceted model for that sort of a thing. Yeah. I just I wonder I mean some uh, some of that in there reminded me for some reason of like medieval times which is <laughs> like it it's dinner and a show yeah a very specific show and a very specific dinner um but but this you know we're not we're not talking about uh, dinner theater no really 
because because it's not like it's the same show every time and and dinner theater is always i i feel like more attention is paid to the theater than the dinner right um and you you wouldn't want that but uh yeah, I think there's def. I think there's room for that kind of thing. I just, uh, I, I don't. I, this didn't end up being it, or it's the wrong place for it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Like, would I go to a smaller music venue that when I bought my ticket, it said, "Hey, there's food available there, a la carte. You can just buy it." However, if you order food right now from this shortened menu, it costs a bit less. Or Add 10 bucks to your ticket and you get the popcorn flight. House-made popcorn <laughs> flight, right? That sort of thing. I would do it in a heartbeat. Yeah. You know? And then on the restaurant side of it, they would go, we have 100 people coming in for this band tonight. 75 of them are getting our set menu. You already know how much to make. And then you make, I don't know, 25% more just in case. Or maybe maybe 30% more prep. And so if the other people who come in want to get it, or if the people who just wander into the bar want to get some of the set menu for the night, you're good to go. Yeah. And you have minimal waste. You know how to staff all of that. It sounds like what these folks are doing is solving for controllables. And again, I applaud that. Yeah. Too much yes. in my industry is unknown until you open the doors and then everything falls apart. <laughs> you know. And and maybe some of what they've done as well is based on what they saw in terms of uh, the events that they hosted and yeah. turnout and that kind of thing. So they can uh, n- now they have more data to be able to make those decisions based on um, versus you know a, a stab in the dark. So uh, but it, it seemed like I, I was the one was like hey another two year you know another restaurant that after two years this yeah. one isn't really closing or failing necessarily but it was like you know they they did it for two years and now they're they're radically changing kind of what they're doing and so we'll see in two years if something else radically changes or uh you know if they continue doing what they're doing or if they throw in the towel before then or i you know i don't know i'll I'll keep an eye on it because i am definitely curious now but just in terms of the lifespan of a restaurant um it you know the the two-year mark seems to be an important one it's make or break yeah within two years you're either looking forward to five years or you're closing your doors (laughs) yeah I did a little bit more looking I, – I hate to use the word research, but I did a little bit more looking into that uh, Holman and Finch in Asheville, North Carolina that closed mid-shift. Right. Yes. And I couldn't find any more reporting on it. That was – unfortunately, it's become so common for restaurants to just be like, hey, fuck off. We're done. That it isn't a story. It's not news. Couldn't find any new reporting since April 6th, right, which is when you and I talked about it. So I thought, mm, let's get some apocryphal reporting. And so I went on to their Facebook page for that location. And people have feelings. I really should have taken some screenshots of it. But the, the, the comments on that restaurant in Asheville, North Carolina, closing. First off, their statement, which I believe we read on this show, didn't say anything about how they opened for lunch. And then had the manager on duty and the servers on duty call around to the other staff to say, don't come in tonight. Right. So we still don't know why that had to happen because that's fucking a lot of weird things happen in my industry. But that's that's extra weird. Yeah. Like that sounds like like you close that quickly when like the building's on fire. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Not because things haven't been going great. Yeah. You don't open up for half of your service for a day and then cut it off. Right. Unless you're worried someone's coming to the restaurant that day to break your knees because you didn't pay, like, the produce or something, right? right? <laughs> yeah. So we still do not know what was happening with that. 
But in the comments on Facebook, first off, there were your classic ones that are like, this restaurant sucked anyway. And then people commenting on that being like, do you even live here? Who Like, you live in Florida. Like, why are you commenting on this? <laughs> and then you got people saying, well, crime downtown Asheville is so bad. I'm surprised anybody goes there ever. And then people going like, you don't live here or whatever. And then you've got people going, it was too expensive. And then you have people saying, I had a, one bad experience there. I never went back. And you have people going, this is my favorite restaurant of all time. I'm so sad they closed. That whole gamut. And then you've got people, and I'm going to keep all these anonymous because I'm just going off the top of my head what I remember. There was a chef, or cook at least, who was like, as someone who worked in the back of the house at this restaurant, I'm going to miss having a job. And that was the entirety of the comment. And then there were all these follow-up comments and no responses. There was someone who said, a customer who said, I had reservations for that night and I didn't know they were closed until I showed up. And the comment beneath that was, I served at that restaurant. I didn't know we were closed until I showed up for my evening shift. So it's, it, it was ugly. Whatever happened was very, very ugly. Again, we still do not know what happened. Yeah. But it was A, bad communication. B, uh, very uh, abrupt. And just not, in, in the hospitality industry, all we are supposed to do is be hospitable and take care of people, and we don't take care of the people that we're going to see tomorrow, which feels wrong. I'm not going to see the customers tomorrow that I have today, but yeah. I'm going to see Stu, the line cook next to me. Right. And if I don't call him and I don't tell him the restaurant closed and he doesn't have a job anymore, that's not caretaking. That's not being hospitable. And it's still shocking to me even after covid and after how everybody in the industry has just been like wait a minute why do bosses fucking suck so bad and they've had a chance to really think about it that bosses still suck so bad i don't yeah. i don't understand it i'm i'm extra curious now um and if anyone listening is is in that area or has any inside information or if you have any information of um of a similar instance yeah. of something closing in your in your past that you uh you know we can keep you anonymous for sure just uh um, but but let us know. Um, re- reach out to us uh, here in town. Another thing I saw. So at one point, I don't know how long ago, a year and a half ago, maybe um, I got an email was like, hey, next door, one of your neighbors is invited. I think we actually got a letter in the mail. Um, hey, one of your neighbors is inviting you to join next door. Right. Um, and so I was like, OK, next door is like. Um, everything bad about Facebook distilled. Into I was going to say syrup. Yeah, it's Yelp for a neighborhood made out of racist old people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, the name change from next door to octogenarians in a fire truck did not pass. <laughs> so, uh, um, but uh, one of the things I did see someone posted it, and I was like, oh, based on this, and it was going to back to Facebook. Based on this picture, it looks like um, a re- another restaurant here in town is closing for good and i guess they posted on their facebook hey temporarily closed and someone took a picture and the picture is of like the um it's not a big place and it was in an area of town i was like i have driven by there i don't know how many times and i never knew this place existed i was like there's another restaurant out there that i know exists it's going out of town the if we go to my folks place and we drive out uh um east of town instead of going kind of north of town it, it would be a place we would have passed a lot of people were talking about how good their pizza was, but I think it was like a bar and grill kind of a place or maybe even more of like a pub. Um, but uh, anyway, they evidently did pizza differently than everybody else in town, according to some people. But the Cube, picture, Cuban pizza, probably. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, the the picture was, uh, you can see like the side of the building. There was like a big uh, moving van kind of thing 
backed up to it, moving truck, uh, and a state trooper. <laughs> a state <laughs> I patrol car. Laugh. I shouldn't laugh at that. And and then someone's like, hey, that company, I Googled the company that's name was on the truck. Um, and it was like something repo, I repo. think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it said they're an auction company. So they're probably loading all of the kitchen equipment in to auction it off. Oh. Um, it is what they said. It's like, yeah, they're probably not going to be reopening. Um, but that seemed to have happened fairly sudden, suddenly in terms of anyone in, in uh, you know, uh, at least on the neighborhood app, um, having been aware of it. I don't know about the people that work there, if they, you know, knew, knew ahead of time that this was happening or if it was just like, hey, creditor's knocking on the door and he's got a moving van with him and a state trooper. <laughs> yeah. We got to close. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, could, that, that seems to, I mean, that to me says we couldn't pay some bills, but I don't know. Like part of me wants to reach out to that server and reach out to that cook and just be like, look, I don't know you. You don't know me. We've been following this story such as it is. If you want to add any information to this conversation, we can totally use it. But at the same time, like, I don't want to compound. Like, these are people who have lost their jobs in the last couple of weeks. The last thing somebody like that wants to do, unless they do want to shit talk like hard, do they want to be reminded of how hard that is to just all of a sudden you're like, yeah. well, fuck, I don't have a job, right? If I lost my job today, three weeks from now, I mean, I'd have a job again. I'm, I'm imminently employable. But if I wasn't, that would be the worst. I wouldn't want to talk about it. <laughs> you know, I guess there's no yeah. harm in reaching out still. I can't. I worry about the servers at that place. Let's say you worked last night. You're going to pick up your cash tips from last night today because maybe that's how they start all their – a lot of places do that. They'll start their their um, pre-service meetings with here's your tips from last night, right, envelope of cash. You get a call, restaurant's closed. What about the cash you made last night? Where is that? How do you get it? Who do you talk to about that? Yeah. Especially if it's another server calling you to tell you that. Like now you've got to call the manager. Now you've got to call the owner. Now you've got to figure something out. I, as much as I still sort of hate the tipping culture and I still think it needs to go away, but I don't have the answer for how to fix that. That's their money. They need yeah. that money. Where is that money and who's in charge of it? Yeah. Oh, it's in the safe. Oh, okay. That's great. We'll get it out. Well, no, the safe is on a truck headed to <laughs> yeah, the safe's being auctioned off. Uh, I don't know. Again, not, not my, not my circus, not my monkeys, but at the same time, like, because I do belong to this industry and I do bear some of the responsibility for how shitty everything is, it kind of is mine to a certain degree. And when we, so when we look back at just experiences thus far in life, like I, the, the, the awful bagel place I worked at, um, closed like that, that, um, branch of it. Um, and he'd had it set up so that the, the, that could happen, like they could cut off their appendages without kind of killing <laughs> the body, because the, the main one is still around. But anyway, um, that one closed. Had nothing to do with me. Like, if I was there, still would have closed. Leaving, yeah. still would have closed. So I can't take credit like, aha, yeah, you fired me and you, you had to close. Like, there was nothing I could have done that would have saved that place. I knew that as soon as I got there. The writing was on the wall. I was trying to find other employment as soon as I kind of like after day two or even maybe even yeah. after day one. Um, but looking back at places you've been, I know there are places that have closed after you've left. Um, I don't know if there's any place you can take credit for. <laughs> no, 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 no. What, um, what happens with me, I've always called myself the first rat off the ship. I've never caused a closing, but I can feel them coming. 
Things yeah. just start to get weird. And we talked about this when we were talking about Holman and Finch originally. What would be a, not a good reason, but a compelling reason to not tell your staff that you were going to close suddenly? Well, you don't want them all to quit and ha- have you not be staffed on your last couple of days, right? That's yeah. the only compelling reason to do it. The ownership knew they were going to close that location. They knew when they were going to do it. They knew how they were going to do it. Because, again, unless lives were being threatened by mob boss creditors, which would be wild, it's not completely out of the question, but it would be wild. Unless that was happening, they knew what they were going to do. They didn't tell anybody because they didn't want everybody to find jobs and quit first, right? You can't break up with me, I break up with you, right? Like, it's that, right? So, I've never been in that position, but you can feel it. You can feel when things are changing, when things are getting weird. The product quality starts to decrease. You see the chef owner starting to take shortcuts. All of a sudden, staff can't have pop out of the gun anymore. Like, all of this stuff will start to happen, and you're like, I need a new job right now. Yeah. You can see it coming. Yeah, okay. So, middle of shift, though, it still seems rather rash. Like, that doesn't seem like a decision that's made that far in advance. Like, maybe it was made that morning, or maybe it was made the day before, but it doesn't seem like something that, okay... In a month from now, in the middle of the day, <laughs> we're going to call people. <laughs> uh, so there, there, I feel like there's still something going on there. But, yeah, the other thing I was going to ask was, like, like, yeah, what are some of the signs? Um, and, yeah, I think you're right. You can definitely feel it. Um, like one of the employees at the bagel place, when the other guy came in as a, a quote-unquote manager, the same job I had, which was quote-unquote manager, um, uh, I was like, hey, we're going to do we're going to turn this place around or something like that. And he got fired because he said, good luck. Stephen tried. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he got written up in a, uh, like a week or so later. He was gone. But uh, um, and 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 yes, I did try. Did I try hard? No, because I knew it was a, a losing battle um, or or at least it was a battle that like no one had my back. And I was only going to stick my neck out so far. Um for an organization that that was zero support yeah. in 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 terms of what they wanted me to do and then what they were um, equipping me to do, but uh, um, well then it's easier to blame you for it. If they yeah. set you up to fail, knowing that it's going to fail, then they can point at you. Yeah, uh, but it's weird because you think they would have just then closed it when they fired me, but no, they they let someone else, I guess, <laughs> some some other poor schlump. Uh, also have a terrible experience, but, uh, yeah. So like what are, what are some of the, the signs if you're working in a, a little bit more legit of a restaurant? Cause that was just a dumb little bagel closet. It wasn't a, you know, a legit, it wasn't really a legit coffee shop. It wasn't a legit, uh, you know, it, it was, it was in an L station. Uh, so well, if you're working so in a regular place, let me, let me preface it with this. The only reason I can think of off the top of my head without, knowing anything about it. And this is pure supposition, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know anything about Holman and Finch. If, because it was also a Wednesday, right? Yeah. That they closed? I, I okay. think it was like I believe it was. I don't remember. If their credit was so bad and their cash flow was so bad that they placed an order, because on a Wednesday afternoon, you're going to get a big meat or produce or dairy or all or liquor for the weekend. So that Thursday morning you can start prepping out your weekend shit. If their credit with their vendors was so bad that they were not going to be receiving deliveries on that Wednesday, but they found out Wednesday morning, everybody was just like, you cannot, you have 
$12,000 worth of invoices sitting in our system right now. We're not sending you anything else. And their deliveries got cut off that morning. I could see them just going, fuck it, we're closed. Yep. I could see that being the thing. However, that also doesn't creep up on you. You have to know you are not making good on your invoiced debts. So they had to know it was coming. But if they ordered big for a weekend prep session on Thursday and suddenly found out Wednesday morning none of their shit was going to show up, A, you can't run a restaurant with no food. B, I could see that being a frustrating flashpoint where the chef owners are going, fuck it, we're just done. We're just done. And we will have to siphon funds off of our – because they have two other restaurants in uh, Atlanta. We'll siphon rest, uh, funds off of those two, pay out all these debts, and we're, we're just done. We're done. Close the doors. Yeah. Now. Tax write-off. Yeah. You want to do so you think your restaurant's about to close. Um, here is what I have seen in my experience. The most blatant would be if all of a sudden the GM, the owner, and the chef are walking around the restaurant with somebody you've never seen before who is in a suit but no tie. <laughs> <laughs> and who is carrying like one of those zippered portfolio kind of things. Yeah. That is a restaurant consultant. And the restaurant is not likely to close. But keep in mind, anybody who's been there more than about two or three years is going to get fired. The very first thing a restaurant consultant does, because you only bring one of these motherfuckers in when you need to cut costs. Free coffee for the staff goes away. Like I said before, pop out of the gun at the bar goes away. Staff meals, like family meal, goes away, and you go to, like, you can have anything you want off the menu for 50% off. Right. Staff booze goes away. Anybody who's been there for a couple of years and has gotten some raises goes away. And they want to hire in behind them minimum wage people, right? right. These are all across the top of the board cost-cutting things that a, a restaurant consultant will do. So you see that guy, it's always a guy. Very, very short hair. He's going to be late 40s, early 50s. Can tell you all of the restaurants he's run in his career. And in your head, you'll go, all of those places are closed now, right? <laughs> that guy. His name's going to be like Stuart, right? You see the GM and the chef and the owner walking around with that guy. The owner is going to look either really angry or really hopeful. The chef is going to look really tired. And the GM is going to have this spark. Of like, my books are going to look fucking great. <laughs> right. You will see on the pop gun, it'll say Coke, but it'll be uh, Royal Crown or something like this. Is that the one? RC Cola? RC. What's that one? It'll be something cheaper. Yeah. You will see Hellman's Mayo go away and you'll see whatever the U.S. foods like Monarch brand or whatever. You start to see things like that. Things that the customers won't see. You won't see Heinz ketchup. You'll see whatever your Broadliners uh, house brand is. You will start. You won't be getting um, diced onions in anymore or peeled onions in anymore. You'll get whole big bags of onions that your dishwasher will start to peel because your dishwasher is also making minimum wage cash, right? What else happens? You will see fewer servers being scheduled and more of them being cut more quickly. So you'll get to the end of the night and instead of having five servers out there doing roll-ups and doing checkouts and stuff like that, it'll be two. Bar backs and uh, bussers, you'll see fewer of them being scheduled. And servers will be bussing more of their own tables and running more of their own drinks. 
These are all things that when you see these happening, you need to be like, uh-oh, this place is going to close. Yeah. Uh, when the chef starts coming around at the beginning of your shift and handing you one side towel and saying, keep it dry, you don't get another one, you're probably about to close. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else, because there's stuff that like you just need, right? So it's not like the power flickers and you're like, uh-oh. They didn't pay the power bill. It's not stuff like that. You just need power. You need gas. You need the um, the expended fryer oil to get picked up, the garbage to get picked up. You need to have a certain amount of food. But, like, you stop doing specials. There stops being a specials menu, right? Um, you see that instead of working a 2 to 10, when you open up for dinner at 5... You're working a 3.30 to 10 or a 4 to 10. Or you have a swing guy who is covering the end of lunch to the beginning of dinner and doing prep. And you're not coming in until right at 5. Your restaurant's probably about to close. And it can be any or all of these. Like, just one of these things should give you pause. Should make you start to think. Yeah. Well, and like you said, it. it I mean, it's an indication that things aren't... Um running as smoothly as hoped or as they once were at the very least um and you realize of course ben that you just you gave away the restaurant consultant secrets just now without charging for them. <laughs> your uh, i mean yeah <laughs> your future life as the uh zipper pouch guy saying ah fire <laughs> these guys um buy cheaper ketchup yeah what you can't control is how many people come into your restaurant and what they order, right? That's the scary thing about running any restaurant. An unknown pe number of people are going to come into your restaurant at any given time, order an unknown amount of things, and then leave, right? Could be zero people, could be a thousand people. So what a restaurant consultant is always going to tell you is control the things you can control, and it's all financial-based decisions. So... If you are getting a mayo that costs $8 for a gallon, but you could get a mayo that costs $3 a gallon, do that. If you are getting a ketchup that costs $12 for a number 10 can, get the one that costs 4 right? Make these kind of choices that may or may not actually affect the guest experience, but also don't show, right? So if you have bottles of mayo, I don't know why you would, but if you had a bottle of mayo on the table, make sure that one's Hellman's. Mayo that you're using in the back for dressings, make sure that's the shitty one that you get from Cisco, right? Uh, if you have a dish that has, if you make spanakopitas, uh, phyllo pastry spinach dish, right? And you're bringing in tons and tons of fresh spinach to wilt down for that, the restaurant consultant is going to tell you buy frozen spinach. It's a worse product. It arguably takes more prep because you have to thaw it out and squeeze it dry and all that but that's what the consultant is going to tell you pound for pound it's cheaper so do that it's it looks like shortcuts in the kitchen because it is but it's all financial decisions and that's what a consultant's looking at no restaurant consultant in the world is looking at guest experience they're looking at numbers and that's it yeah they're just looking at numbers which honestly that's what chefs and restaurant managers and owners aren't looking at so somebody has to i guess yeah. but like that it takes the fun out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when you see that guy, I've, I've, I've been at two different restaurants in my career where a restaurant consultant showed up. 
the first time I didn't know who he was, but I knew he took away my free coffee. And the second time I saw that guy, it was a different guy. I was just like, Ooh, I need to start looking for a new job. And within <laughs> six months, that place was closed. Like if you are running out of money and you decide to spend money on a restaurant consultant, you're right. You should probably disclose. Yeah. Take whatever you were going to spend on a consultant and just close instead. Yeah. Sorry. Um, well, and, and a lot of those things are going to lead to worse experiences. Um, accidentally like removing free free soda and free coffee from your yeah. the people that are on the line that's going to make them angry and it was it w- it wasn't costing you that much yeah and so if you have cooks on the line drinking two gallons of coconut and you take that away from them they're just gonna steal it <laughs> and your net is going to be the same and the restaurant consultant is going to say well Employee theft is not what you brought me in here for. <laughs> so when the consultant is done crunching your numbers and telling you what to do, and you do those things, and all of a sudden customers are going, I'm having a terrible experience here. The consultant's going to go, that's not the thing you hired me for. I don't have any responsibility for that. You did the things I told you to do, and your numbers look great. If the customers are unhappy, that's your thing. And they're not going to be wrong, but they're also dicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Because well, it I- kind of is their thing, but it's not. You know. Yeah. I was going to say there's some some of those things that definitely affect the other the the experience front of house, um, the customer experience, and and some not so much. Some of it is uh, um, psychological. Yeah. Um, so even if you're buying the cheap ketchup and putting it out there, put it in your Heinz bottles <laughs> that, <laughs> right. that you kept. You know, refill those bottles with with the cheaper stuff. Um, and then people will, m- might wonder, but they're not going to be immediately put off by the white ketchup bottle or whatever it is that you that you have on the table uh, because they immediately know that something isn't right. Um, it, it seems like I, I would think that those actually uh, the, the cooks are going to know before front of house staff because you're going to see that generic stuff is being put in the cooler. Generic yep. stuff is in dry storage, whereas the front of house staff might not notice that. Um and I was thinking, like, is it is it is it a sign if you move from the little uh, porcelain or plastic uh, containers for uh, condiments to paper? But then paper costs, so yep. I don't know, if, like, if that would if that would mean things are are going the wrong way or not. Maybe you just have less of the other stuff because they're not being replaced as they get broke. Sure, but what you're gonna find too with like a coffee caddy is you have sugar in the raw, you have equal, you have Splenda, you have that like Truvia. And you have regular white sugar. And then as you run out of those, you go, you stop getting the Truvia. You go down to just equal. So then all of a sudden you just have sugar in the raw, sugar and equal, and that's it. Like, that's the sort of thing you start to see with a consultant. Why do you have five different kinds of greens on your menu? Why not just have romaine and arugula? Why do you have to have mixed greens and spinach and mizuna, right? And so that's the way that, uh, in a number sense, a restaurant consultant is going to try to condense your footprint to keep your margins uh, as, as high as possible. And like you said, that's intangible as far as guest experience is concerned. Because the more you narrow something, the fewer people are going to want to eat at your place. What if you don't like spinach? And you used to come there for the mixed green salad. Uh, and it's gone. It's a spinach salad now. Do, do you think that Cheesecake Factory has had restaurant consultants in, and whenever they do, they just do the complete opposite? <laughs> it's like, you need to cut two greens. What's that? Add six greens to our menu? <laughs> we'll do it. Nice. Uh, 
Um, because if anyone could cut cut away, <laughs> cut some chaff, it would be uh, right. Factory. I, I mean, the other thing is that because I've been out of full service restaurants now for over a decade, there may be things that happen COVID wise that are also red flags that I don't even know what they are. You know, yeah. there may be things going on. There may be signals going out in restaurants that are like, oh, shit, the place is about to close that I've never seen because I just don't run into them. Now, I don't know. It's a little bit tougher to say because it used to be that when a restaurant would temporarily close and put a sign saying, hey, we're renovating <laughs> and they were closing. Right. But now that might not be the case. There are places that are still like there are restaurant tours that are coming around to the idea that we're never going to be post COVID, that that's never really going to be a thing. And they need to have a more robust and more um, integrated to go program. Yeah. Because of all of these stupid fucking uh, delivery services, right? Like your uh, Uber Eats's and your your things like that. They need to be able to accommodate that. It's not the best thing in the world, but they have to be able to do it. So if you take a third of your tables out and you put together a banging to go system, and it means that you have to be closed for two weeks to do a renovation, maybe that's not a bad move right now because everything is in place. Uh, disposables are getting better and easier to get a hold of. There's a lot more variety now. So if, aside from the fact that we still have not put the fry diaper together, if <laughs> you want to do a very specific type of to-go process, you can find a box for it. There's an enormous number of, uh, uh, amount of variety out there for that stuff. So if there's a sign that goes up on a restaurant now that says closer renovations will be back open in two weeks, I'm now more likely to believe that that's what's actually going on. Whereas in the past, if I saw that, I was like, whoop, that joint's closed. You still need to tell your staff more than a couple hours in advance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so here's here's probably the best indication that your restaurant's going to close. At noon, you get a call saying the restaurant closed. And you shouldn't come <laughs> into work that day. <laughs> right, yes. That's a very clear indication. Your shift is supposed to start at 2, and you've been called by a coworker saying you're unemployed. Yeah. That's Ultimately, a good indication. You show up, the lights are off, the doors are locked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a state trooper in a repo van <laughs> out back. Yeah. Everybody is trying to cut costs right now, which is bonkers. Not everybody. That's a lie. There are people out there doing really good work with being like, all right, look, everybody, we're going to pay all of our staff more, but we're going to have fewer staff because we just can't. There's nobody to hire. We just cannot find people. Right. I just had this conversation with my staff. Everybody's going to work a little harder. I am paying all of you more money. Sorry. Not Sorry. This is going to be fine. We just need to get through this next little piece. And we will, two quarters from now, in six months, we will reevaluate everything and see if we can't bring someone else on at that new hire rate and continue to do what we're doing. Some people are doing that kind of thing. For the most part, everybody is still nickel and diamond and saying uh, that minimum wage is fine, even though it's not. And uh, they're trying to cut costs here, there, and the other. A lot of those places are going to find that there is no long term for that because yeah. people are getting out of the industry. Like if you can make 25 bucks an hour working at an Amazon warehouse, but I'm going to pay you minimum wage, you're not going to work for me. It doesn't matter how much you love to cook. You can fucking cook at home after your 40 hour <laughs> a week warehouse job that takes no intellectual effort on your part at all. And you get home and you've got energy and you can cook all night. Yeah. Oh, I've had a question and let's see if I can recapture it. It's all right. I just left us in a real depressing place. <laughs> um, oh, oh, also, oh, so if you're in a kitchen, and and they are they they are cost cutting, and one of the ways they're doing that is 
um, you, they're intentionally or or um, so your situation is different because you couldn't really hire someone. You right. could, but it would be for a limited amount of time. Plus, there's all that time then that you would have had to have spent um, looking at resumes and trying yeah. and vetting someone that's going to take you out of the kitchen. Where, so it just makes more sense for you to be in there and, and to to uh, um, work for the last few months here before the break uh, right. minus one person. Uh, the key component there being, I think, that you're in the trenches with them. Right. So if you're in a place and, we're hey, we're short-staffed, but the... Uh, head chef the the chef owner or whoever it is is in the trenches with you during the rush and is making is prepping food and not locked in their office that <laughs> that feels better than we're going to have to work short staff for a while I'll be in my office let yeah. me know if something catches fire like that's that's a different story right yeah so ladies and gentlemen if you're running kitchens right now uh it is okay to talk to your cooks they don't bite unless you <laughs> ask them to and that's your thing we are now officially, I'm calling it right now, we are officially past the era in restaurants where the chef holds all of the recipes, the financial information, and all the power. And the cooks better just do their fucking job or they get fired. We're past that. We don't live in that world anymore. That's gone, right? The most success I've ever had in my career has been supported by giving my staff actually way more information than they want. I talk too much. I now have to dial back because some of the problems that I have are really just my problems and I've burdened my staff with some of them because they can't help me, right? If you are open and honest and you give your staff as much information as is helpful to them, you will find people invest 100% of the time. So let's say... You are in a position where all that shit that I just said was happening. All of a sudden, you're seeing different mayo, different ketchup. Uh, you are getting, like, any of the sort of, like, convenience items you were getting. Like, you used to get um, sort of, like, a pre-shredded mix to make your jardinera. You were still making jardinera from scratch. But, like, your cauliflower and, and your carrots and your celery and stuff like that came in already cut up. But you're not getting that anymore. It's all whole. If you start to see that, you're going to get suspicious that the the operation is making financial changes that will eventually affect you when the joint closes that puts you in a position as a cook of being like you're nervous you you have a certain amount of anxiety you don't you're you're worried right now if a month before that the chef comes to everybody and says fucking sit down we're all going to go up to the bar right now. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a talk. Here's where we are as a restaurant. We need to make changes. Here is what I need you to do. Be aware that this is going to happen. We need to get through this X number of days, this X period of time. We're going to institute some cost cutting. This will not affect your paycheck. I may ask more of you. That will be reflected in the hours you work. But here's what's going to happen. You know what you're going to find as a chef when you do that? Everybody is going to be on board with it. And you will get suggestions from your staff you would not have thought of. If yeah. you leave that open, you don't have to take every suggestion. But if you, at the very least, are listening, everybody will have something to say that will make you go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Because are you the one peeling all the onions? No. But if you've got a line cook who comes up to you later and is like, you know, when Carl peels the onions, he's going down three layers. We could probably have somebody else do it or retrain Carl and save – 
uh, uh, an eighth of each onion and we would be up a bag of onions after two weeks, every week. Things like that that you may not be able to see. Yeah. This guy, not not to rat each other out, but like you hand everybody in that kitchen their own rubber spatula and you're like, you're scraping every pot. We're not throwing away anything. That kind of thing will not only bring your team together a little bit more, they will also have suggestions that you will not have thought of. And then they're also invested in that success model. And it it's a game changer. I have done that with my staff this year. We started off rocky this year, this school year. And our food cost was about $17,000 over budget by Thanksgiving. We are now $570 over budget. And it is entirely because I involve my staff in this process. I have staff members going into a Friday, looking at the celery going, you know what? I only use this celery for soup. It gets cooked. It will be bad by Monday. I'm going to dice it today and throw it in the freezer. I will use it Monday for soup. But if I came into this kitchen on Monday, that celery would be garbage and I'd have to throw it away. Celery costs nearly fucking nothing. Yeah. But I have staff who do that on their own now. Would I have said to the lady who makes the soup for me, I need you to chop celery and put it in the freezer before it goes bad? No, it wouldn't have occurred to me. She just did. She didn't even fucking ask. She just did it. I have staff coming to me saying, we have broccoli left. Can you switch the soup tomorrow to a broccoli soup? And I'm going, fuck yeah, I can. Then I won't order the corn for the corn and black bean soup. You know, things like that. You will find they will support you when they feel like they are included. Yeah, absolutely. It's a success model. Yes. And and I think that that, that, that model, and I mean, we could we can throw buzzwords like sustainability on it or whatever um, it, it, as well. And I think they, that it's not that that isn't applicable, but those bring some political... Uh, baggage yeah. sometimes with it but i think the restaurants that that um are really gonna succeed and not just like break even and uh you know where the owners can maybe actually sleep at night instead of sweating over stuff right are are gonna follow the model that you're talking about in terms of you utilizing everything as much as possible so that it's not like well um fish didn't sell well let's toss it yeah. Uh, or maybe, you know, that, that where you set up a, an environment where it's flexible enough that you can utilize everything to the fullest extent. So because it only helps your bottom line, yeah. you know, yeah, it's better because we're not wasting it um, on a sustain, the sustain, sustainability end of things. But also it's better for your bottom line. It's better business wise because you're not then wasting anything because yeah. you're, you're utilizing everything uh, before it goes bad. Um, which I think is is, and you've always been good at that. I think you've always had that in mind. Um, what true, but I'm not everybody, and I want to be a model for that. But so much of what line cooks are trained to do, because I I had the same training they always did, uh, I just happen to be built a little bit differently. Which is, it's not merit based. It's just how I am. Uh, do your job, do just your job, and shut up. That's always been the training for line cooks. Looking sideways down the line you're only ever doing that if you want the next guy's job if you yeah. want to be the grill person if you want to be the saute person but looking at it can be as simple as this because it doesn't always have sustainability is great and this model accidentally generates sustainability right, right. which is fine i understand that's a politically charged term which it does not need to be but whatever yeah in a labor sense when i have a staff member this happened this year if i have a staff member who is chopping onions for something they will go around and find out if anybody else needs onions that day. Because the amount of time it takes to set up a board, peel onions, 
chop them, get containers, you know, store them or make whatever it is. Just adding five more onions into that saves all of that other time and and costs yeah. that person nearly no time. And it just comes around. So it's always my soup lady, Angela. When she cuts onions, she always asks everybody else if they need onions first. She's done it for me. And then she'll just cut a couple extra onions and then we're saving that person. And that becomes a labor thing. Everybody's A, that's less labor, which I like, right? Because then my salad lady isn't having to cut onions for her salad because they're already done. B, that's instant morale booster teamwork fucking nonsense. My salad lady loves Angela a little bit more because Angela just saved her 10, 15 minutes worth of work, right? Yeah. And it cost Angela three minutes worth of work. That's a great deal. Now, later on, when my salad lady has way too many carrots, she's going to look at Angela and go, you need carrots for that chicken noodle soup, right? And Angela's going to go, yeah. And they're going to trade it back off. It works. Maybe it's just my kitchen. I don't want to say that's true, but it works. Cooks are collaborative. Yeah. Like by nature. Yeah. Just well, letting them do it is a, is is the easiest thing in the world. And I think that uh, I mean I'm I'm no one. My my opinion really doesn't count because I'm not in kitchens. But it, it theoretically, if we're just talking um, um, you know uh, uh, culinary theory, um, I I would think that uh, that um, when you're writing menus and you're, when you're looking at your kitchen, it, um, and I don't know how anybody does this. When you're writing a menu and you're looking at your kitchen, how do you how do you what well, I. We just mentioned that you're probably going to be a little different, but if you're looking at it, and you're like, okay, this is what should be coming from the fry station. This is what should be coming from the grill. This is what should be coming from um, the boiler station. I don't know what that was. The <laughs> stovetop. Yeah, uh, um, that's different than than looking at everything kind of um, more holistically, right? And being like, well, if right. we have this on a fryer, on the fryer, then that means we could have this on saute. And because we have some crossover with either ingredients or whatever, so you're yeah. either buying more of something because you're going to use it in a couple different places, or you're buying less of something because you don't need to double up on it. Um, but that just seems like the the and, and I, I I guess not everyone can think on the big you know gr- a grand scale like that when they look at something. Maybe maybe it's more compartmentalized for some people, but I would think the holistic approach is just better. Um, organizationally and, and, you know, financially as well. Yeah, some of it, some of it is how your brain is built. Like some people can see a big picture and some people can't. And that's, again, not merit-based. That's just how brains are built. But some of it is experience, right? Like I am only a good manager of the kitchen that I manage right now because A, I've been in the industry for 30 years and I've seen a lot of people do it okay and do it really terribly. And because I've been at this location for seven years, one of the things that also helps is I've got three people working for me who have worked for me three years, five years, and seven years, and I don't have to manage them so much. Do I manage the other two? It should be three. Do I manage the other two? It's more like nudging these days because the management stuff that I've done that I've already built in with my three long timers gets shown it's show don't tell you know what i'm saying so like the operation that those three have bleeds over and everybody else is just by example now we do explicit trainings all the time anyway but it's less necessary because everybody again cooks are collaborative it turns into an organism and it's either a good one or it's a bad one yeah. <laughs> right like very much so like an organism if one piece of that is diseased the whole thing is diseased Right. Yeah. And so you also you have to have the right team. That's a whole separate thing. But 
the fact that my three who have been with me the longest do a fair amount of leading by example just by doing their jobs the way that I want them to that solves half my problems right there. Yeah. Because the minute somebody's not doing things the way we're supposed to do them, it sticks out. Yeah. And then that guy quits. That's <laughs> exactly what happened like a month ago. You know, I think the way I want to frame it then is that I feel like um, a lot of a lot of kitchens are product oriented. Yeah. And if the product is coming out and is consistent and is the quality that the uh, sous chef, chef owner, or whomever is looking for, then everything else is ignored. Um and then when fin- when things get rough financially, they bring in the uh, the uh, restaurant consultant, and the restaurant consultant is process oriented, yeah. does not yeah. care about the product, is looks strictly at process and gums that all up. Whereas whereas I'm gonna go out on a limb and say the most successful uh, restaurants are the ones that are um, process and product oriented. So yeah. you're combining and you're looking at both and uh, you have a healthy process for everyone involved and then that pr- is producing a good product. Um, so, yeah, I don't, not that that's an easy thing to just, oh, th- let's do that then. <laughs> well, you're, correct, correct. Um, I'm thinking right now, back earlier in my career, the restaurants that operated in the way that I've just been espousing we're always considered to be like, ah, it's one of those hippie restaurants, right? Like the managers are all, come on, everybody, let's get, let's all get together. And that was the sense from us in fast-paced, regular, quote-unquote regular restaurants, right? Turns out those hippies had something right. Because thinking back on it now, the more information an employee has the more agency they have in sort of directing their own workflow, their own process to get to the product, the more ownership they're going to feel about it and the more invested they're going to be. And all of those things are to the good. But you can't do any of that if the chef is in the office with the books closed, with the recipes in a notebook that nobody gets to see and all of that. Yeah. When it's very, you work for me, as opposed to we work here. Right, right. Then you get people who are, I guess I'm a cog, I'm not an individual, and without question, one cook can make a stamp on a restaurant. One cook can make a place great or make a place terrible. It's as simple as that. And in many ways, you want to have everybody in your kitchen be that one cook that makes the place amazing. They can't do that unless there's somebody like me who has just, I've just always been an overachiever. That's just how my parents raised me. That's how I'm built. I always want to do the best job. Part of it is fear. So I never wanted to be fired. <laughs> but you can't have that impulse in everybody. Because not everybody has that. And again, that's fine. People are all just built differently. But the more information you give them, the more you say, when you do this, it results in this. Then they have more ownership, they have more agency over those processes, the more invested they're going to be, the happier they're going to be to come to work, the more input they're going to keep giving you. And the other thing, chefs, fucking, goddammit, it's okay to try something, have it not work out, and try something else. Yeah. When you dig in and go, no, this is going to work, you're you're on the back foot. You're working from a position of, of weakness. And I'm not saying change it after one day. You've got to give a new idea a couple of weeks. But if it's not working, you have to be able to take your lumps and just say, well, it didn't work. We're going to try something else. Yeah. 
You have to be able to do that. And big old ego-driven asshole chefs are never able to do that. And that's how places like that end up taking away the free coffee and cooks quit to go work somewhere else. Yeah. Or you have really runny ketchup. (laughs) (laughs) You have people posting on Facebook, I'm going to miss my job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I would say... You can't dump it on everybody all at once either. If you're if you're a closed door kind of chef, you're not going to be able to do a, a staff meeting where you're like, "All right, everybody, we're working as a team from here on out." Yeah. <laughs> like, you might have to baby step it a little bit, but in my experience, there is no downside to operating a kitchen where the cooks have just like almost an exorbitant amount of inf- information. Tell them fucking everything, and then see how much they actually need to know yeah yeah i don't know we're not going to fix restaurants here today but (laughs) these are things that i've learned like when i go to open my own place when if when i'm bringing all of this with me right like might take some of these fucking staff with me i've talked about that in the past too (laughs) but like there's no reason not to except the reasons are all ego-based so there's no good reason not to let everybody know how you're doing let everybody know what the struggles are and how they can help with it and find out if they have ways you haven't thought of to do that helping. Yeah. Then they feel valued. Then they feel heard. Then they feel like they have some, some input, some agency. I've always thought of everywhere I've ever worked as being my restaurant and I've been criticized for it. And I'm like, if it's not mine, why am I here? And mine in as much as not that I own it, but I belong to it. Not everybody feels that way, but you want them to. And the only way you can do that is by having them invest because you've given them the right amount of information. Yeah. But don't complain too much to them about stuff they can't help you with because then they get mad. <laughs> yeah. I've learned that too. <laughs> it's easy and to stress also, cooks out. You, you, you need to pay extra attention as well in the hiring process because, um, you know, the the person that's going to um, kick the door in and, and steal money from the safe. I'm thinking yeah. of Dirty Duck. I forget exactly yep. how that happened. Yep. but uh, That's the duck. I mean, there, there's... Some people aren't going to, um, you know, you just need the right people as well. I heard someone say that uh, improv is 90% casting, and I imagine it's the same <laughs> way for, like, successful kitchens are 90% yeah. um, hiring. Um, so you got to pay attention. If you're looking for cogs, you're going to get cogs. If you're looking for um, people that, that want to uh, work together as, as one organism, then, then those are the people that are, you know, that you hire. So. So we're starting to run long, but I do yeah. want to say this as well, because you are absolutely right. Hiring managers, chefs, owners, GMs, hiring right now sucks for a number of reasons. It's not that nobody wants to work. That is a line that is being trotted out by boomers. So anybody says nobody wants to work, you can say, okay, boomer, and never believe anything else that person says ever again. <laughs> um, there are people out there who want to work, but nobody wants to work anymore is just a lie. However, the easiest way to separate the wheat from the chaff with resumes is to look and see how long, like how many jobs somebody's had and how long they've been at each one of those jobs. That doesn't count anymore. For the last three years, everybody's resume has turned into Swiss fucking cheese. And there's good and bad reasons for that. And you can't ask those questions. You can't be like, why have you had seven jobs in the last two years? Because the person's just going to say... I kept on taking jobs and COVID kept on closing the restaurants and they had to change whatever. And either the person's lying to you or not, you're not getting any actionable data out of that. Don't ask. It's not worth it. (laughs) Here is a thing that I have started doing and you're going to have to take your lumps on this, but it works. It is like Steve just said, 
casting. It is far more important to hire somebody who's going to get along with the rest of your crew. You can train them to cut onions. You can train them to sweep a line. You can train them to take uh, temperatures and do HACCP shit. You can train them to, to uh, make a, a Bernays sauce. Whatever it is you do, you're going to have to train them anyway. You can train all those things into somebody. Involve your staff in the hiring process. The staff you have on hand that you already know, you already trust, and you want to keep them and you want to keep them happy. Don't have them looking at resumes. That's dumb. Some of that stuff's <laughs> kind of confidential-ish. Yeah. You look through resumes. You do a phone interview. When you do the in-person interview, so this is like step three, and you've weeded out 100 and you've gotten it down to like 14 applicants, have them chat with your staff and leave the room. Make up a thing. Oh, crap, I got to go do it. I'm sorry. Set a timer on your phone. Like, oh, crap, I got to go check something. And leave the applicants alone with your staff. Let them feel them out. Also, if you hire somebody after that and they don't work out and your staff says, I told you so, because they did, take it and say, you know what? You're right. I hired this person hastily. I won't make that mistake again. Yeah. You're not letting the staff tell you who to hire, but you're allowing them to have input, and that's huge. Because then they feel like they're part of the process. Then they feel like, well, we are going to train this person. We are accepting this person, not why are you dumping this guy on us. I've made the mistake. I've taken my lumps, and I'm going to be involving my staff and all my hires from now on. Yeah. They're the ones who are going to have to work with whoever this fucker is that you're hiring more closely than you are. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. If he stinks, they need to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally. Literally. <laughs> if there's a hygiene issue, they will find it out in that yeah. interview. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where I want to wrap this up. Like, everything sucks, everything's on fire, but you don't have to fight the fire by yourself. That's the other thing. Sorry. Last thing. Last, last thing. Chefs are such egotistical monsters. It's okay to have other people help you, especially if they're already the fucking people that you pay to help you with stuff. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, you already have a staff of people who are paid to help you. Let them help you. Yeah. <laughs> Let them help you with your finances. Let them help you with your hiring. Let them help you with process ideas. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the, the message here today. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to get through the last six weeks of school and not claw somebody's eyes out. <laughs> not somebody in particular, just anybody. Yeah, yeah. Because this year has been wild. More positive than negative, but wild. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> to recap, ladies and gentlemen, if you know anything about fermentation, we would love to hear about that, uh, specifically with vegetables and pickling and stuff like that. If you were released from any restaurant job where the restaurant closed mid-shift on a Wednesday, uh, we would love to hear any and all information you can give us about that on or off the record. We can keep stuff completely anonymous if you would like. As well as any sort of signs, like what were the signs yeah. that, that you needed to get out of there? If you, if you left in time, like before the place closed or burned down or whatever, like what were the uh, red flags for you? I'm curious about that too. Right. Also, chef managers, front of the house, GMs, whatever. If you have staff management ideas that are working for you, let me know. We'll pass that on. We will put it right into the next episode because, yeah, if this show becomes a self-help show for restaurant managers and we can turn the whole industry around, yeah happy to do that it's nobody else is going to fix this for us because we won't listen to them because we're dicks you know <laughs> let's fix this ourselves yeah uh best way to get a hold of us is in the weeds wbr at gmail.com my instagram is chef ben randall we have a facebook page and a group which i was certain facebook was 
squishing down into one thing, but it hasn't happened yet. Also, Steve runs a website for us. In the weeds, WBR.com. And anytime we reference an article or or we text each other pictures of stuff, Steve always puts that up on the website too, so you can look there for more uh, background and such about those things. I feel like I've been ranting. Have I been ranting today? <laughs> I don't think it was a rant. <laughs> <laughs> Does a rant have to be negative? Is this a positive rant? <laughs> Uh, it was yeah. a prant. You were, you were prancing. <laughs> I do that as well. Uh, Steve, that's all I've got today, though. Like, I've, I've got to go back into work tomorrow morning with all the problems that I have now. Although, I'm going in literally armed with a brand new energy shot that someone on Instagram recommended to me because they know that I have a problem. It's called Buckshot Energy, and the bottles look like a shotgun shell. <laughs> I will be taking one of those tomorrow morning, and I will report back on how fucking god-awful it is, because I'm sure it is. Nice. (laughs) Six more weeks. (laughs) This is going to be the sweetest summer break ever. All right, ladies and gentlemen, for In the Weeds with Ben Randall, I am Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. We'll talk at you next week. All right, (laughs) bye-bye. Crap, there's a song called FaceTime by Annie Lennox, which is gumming up all of my uh, oh, search, search results. results. <laughs> Annie Lennox, your search engine optimization, fucking on point. <laughs> Sweet dreams are made of search engine optimization indeed. <laughs> At least in this day and age. Right, yeah. I'm sure back in 1984 when the Eurythmics got together, that was what they were thinking about. They were like, when the internet gets invented, we're going to be fucking huge when people try to figure out how to remix the FaceTime call music. Uh, what is this SEO you keep talking about? Don't worry, it'll, it'll, uh, <laughs> it'll explain itself eventually. Wow.